Hi there. Welcome to season one of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. My name is Bert Scholl. I'm a two-time cancer survivor, a cancer survivorship coach, and the creator and host of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. To learn more about my coaching services and to see all the places this podcast can be found, go to bertscholl.com. B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. Today's guest is Carrie Ann Kemp. Carrie Ann teaches maturation to elementary and middle school kids. Her passion is to help everyone love and accept their unique individual body. And for Carrie Ann, this starts with teaching our youth that puberty is not to be feared, but to be embraced. Carrie Ann, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Bert. Thanks for having me. You are so welcome. So let's begin with you telling everyone who's listening when you were diagnosed and what you were diagnosed with. I was diagnosed 11-11 of 2011 with stage 4 mucinous carcinoma of the breast, which is rare for many reasons. It's usually super slow going, so for somebody to be stage 4 is almost unheard of. Mm. And um, as a matter of fact, there's only 97 of us, supposedly, that have ever been stage 4 with that type of breast cancer. So um, that was kind of a big curveball because they couldn't figure out why it didn't get picked up prior to that. Mm. But I think I um, expedited its growth with some supplements I was taking for dieting that had hormones in them because it's a hormone receptive cancer. Ah. So I just fed it a big fat buffet of <laughs> cancer deliciousness every day. <laughs> And it gotcha. just grew and grew and grew. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And what does mucinous carcinoma mean? So even though I had somewhat of a tumor in my breast, the cancer cells were not in the tumor at all. The cancer cells live in the mucus that surrounds the tumor. So when they did the biopsy and they pulled tissue out, the tissue was totally benign. So they were like, oh, you're fine. But then somebody else took it a step farther, and actually when they messed up on the second biopsy, they actually sucked out some of the mucus instead of the tissue, and that's when they found it. Thank heavens for mistakes. I know, right? And it was a big tumor. I mean, it was like almost a softball. Wowee. A softball-sized tumor, and the cancer is not in the tumor, but in the mucus surrounding the tumor. Yes. Oh, man, the amazing mysteries of cancer. And I remember the nurse that was doing the biopsy, she was like, well, there's, it seems like there's something that's not right, but it's not something crazy like mucinous or something. Mm. <laughs> and then it was. <laughs> and then it was. So what was your motivation for going in and having the biopsy and being tested? So I was just barely 40. So I had never had a mammogram. We had no family history of cancer. It wasn't even on my radar, but I was training really hard to do my first Ironman. Mm. So my body was changing really, really fast. And I was trying to lean out and get ready and everything. And someone else actually felt it. They were like, they kind of had grabbed my breast and they were like, oh, you're such a liar. You have implants. Cause I had natural double D's. And I was like, I don't have implants. I hate having these things. And they were like, well, what's that? And they were poking at my boob. And I was like, ow, that kind of hurts. And and so then I, because, you know, as a woman, I don't feel my breasts. Like if I take a shower, I use like a little loofah with, you know, Mm -hmm. cleanser on it and stuff. And I, you know, you put on a bra, you just do your thing. I wasn't 
feeling my breast for any reason. And um, so then I was like, oh, yeah, what is that? That's kind of weird. So the problem was is I couldn't get a mammogram because I was too young and I didn't have a family history and I didn't have insurance. So it took many weeks. And so finally the ultrasonographer at the birth center that I was the director of, um, my staff finally went to him and said, she's freaking out. Can you look at this and see if you can make anything of what it might be? So he said, well, I can't do it right now. And he said, but she can just come to my house tonight and I can look at it. So I was like, okay. So I went over to his house and he started scanning and scanning. And then he was like, hold on just a minute. And he gets on the phone with the radiologist that he works for. And Mm -hmm. he's like, I'm sending you scans right now. Can you look at these? And he scanned my breast for over an hour. And the radiologist said, "Um, she needs to be in my office at 7 a.m. tomorrow morning. Wow. And so I went in to the radiologist and they had canceled all their appointments that morning. And they had um, several ultrasonographers in there and another radiologist. And they had to push two big screens together to fit the tumor. It wouldn't fit on one screen with the ultrasound images. Holy cow. So he scanned forever and they did like 67 mammogram slides, shots. My boob was so smashed, it hurt. And then he said, I don't know if you've heard of BIRADS. Do you know what BIRADS are, Bert? No. So BIRADS are what radiologists use that it's the likelihood of cancer. So most of the images that you get taken are like a BIRAD one. It means there's no evidence of cancer. And there's different levels of BIRADS. And so he said, you're the highest BIRAD that I have ever scanned. And he said, you have life-threatening cancer and you need to go to a doctor in the next 24 hours. So will you explain BIRADS to me again? It's hard to explain. It's like levels of seriousness. So most of the time, if you go in and they do like a ultrasound of the breast, most people would have a BIRAD of like a one or a two, which means there's nothing that triggers them to think that there would be cancer. So 20 is the highest. And I think I was like a 19 or a 20. Okay. So they said you need treatment now. Yeah, they said usually they don't diagnose cancer with just ultrasound images. Mm. And he said, I can tell you right now that you have cancer and it's bad. So BIRAD stands for Breast Imaging Reporting and Data System, refers to breast lesions that are highly suspicious for cancer. All right. This was kind of a while ago, so trying to remember all that, you know? Yeah. So what was your next step? So I went to the radiologist that next day. They took all those images. The radiologist said, this is a big deal. And so that was up in up in the mountains. I live down in the city. So I drove down the canyon with my best friend in shock for sure. Because mm-hmm. I was the most fit and the most healthy I had ever been in my life. So I was like, what? How is this even possible? Yeah. And we got back to the birth center that we worked at. And I was really worried because I didn't have insurance, of course, right? That's the first thing you're thinking of is cancer. How am I going to afford this? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I got an appointment with my primary care physician the next day. He took a look at the report from the radiologist, made a phone call and said, you have an appointment at the surgeon in 30 minutes and at the oncologist in two hours. So I went to the surgeon and she said, um, I've scheduled you to have a port put in tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. You know, and a port, you know, goes into your heart. So I had a a port put in and she said, we're going to send you to the, you're going to the oncologist this afternoon 
and they'll decide if you're starting chemotherapy right after the port is placed or if they're going to give you 24 hours. And I was like, wow. So I, okay. the next morning I showed up, they put the port in and then um, I went to the surgeon and the oncologist looked at all of my stuff and said, there's one scan left that we need to do, but you're at least a stage three. We just don't know if you're stage four, which is so not what you're expecting. Like you never expect to hear you have cancer, but then you never ever expect to hear the word stage four because everyone knows that's like a death sentence, right? We tend to go there. Yeah. yeah. So tell me, just for some people who are listening, I just want to clarify, if you don't know what a port is, a port is an alternative to vein, an IV, an IV for chemotherapy. It's a, it's a little... um. It kind of looks like a bouncy ball, like one of those rubber bouncy balls yeah. you play with as a kid. But then it has a really hard triangle in the middle of it, of it so that they insert it underneath your skin. Mine was on the left side, kind of right where my heart was. And then it has a long tube that runs um, up out of the ball and goes over the top of your clavicle. Yeah. And then they stitch it into the carotid artery that runs down your neck so that when they give you chemotherapy or fluids... It goes straight to your heart. Straight to your heart and gets dispersed through your body. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And one of the reasons that they do it is because veins can get really irritated um, from a lot of chemotherapy. And when they have a port, the nursing staff, they can just draw blood quick from there. They can do chemo through there. Right. They can. It's, it's When you're going to be getting a lot of blood work and a lot of chemotherapy, it's a real convenience to uh, use the port. It's like a little silicone thing that goes under the uh, right under the skin. The nice thing about the port too is you can stay accessed, meaning they can keep you plugged into fluids or or at least keep the, the needle in the port for long periods of time where if you just have an IV in your arm, you're pretty limited. You can only leave that in for about two days anyway, and then they have to pull it and do another one. And you just, your veins just get trashed mm, in chemo. So you just yeah. kind of run out of places to access. Did you have a port? I did have a port. Do you still have yours? I do not. I don't either. I had it removed once I was cancer-free the first time, and then when I had the recurrence three years later, two and a half years later, I had the port put back in, and they convinced me to just keep it in for five years instead of having, you know, to wait until there's no detection of cancer for five years. And that made sense to me because now that, you know, I'd been diagnosed twice and I had a stage four diagnosis, I said, okay, this is, uh, I mean, it was out of my hands the first time, but this is really out of my hands. I'm not going <laughs> to... <laughs> make so many decisions. Right. I'm gonna I'm gonna follow your recommendations a little bit more than I perhaps have in the past. For sure. So you had it in for five years after your recurrence. Mm-hmm. Oh wow. So you have to go in and get it flushed all the time then. Yeah, and I also had a hepatic artery pump in my abdomen, which oh. ran to the hepatic artery and into the liver. Oh goodness. It, it was a secondary chemotherapy treatment that I'd get about every five weeks. And they wow. would have to fill that with a saline solution. On the weeks that I was getting systemic chemo, and it wasn't the chemo from this pump. I would get systemic chemo every two weeks. They do a systemic chemotherapy treatment, take two weeks, do another systemic chemotherapy treatment, you know, through the port. And then yeah. a week after that, they would test my blood and then you know, do one through the hepatic artery pump. And the hepatic artery pump used atmospheric pressure and body temperature to pump so it never stopped so they had to put a saline solution wow. in it you know they'd extract the remaining amount of chemotherapy that was in there anything remaining right. they'd put in saline and then once i stopped receiving chemotherapy and started getting my you know quarterly scans and then six month scans yeah. and annual scans 
they started putting in a, it wasn't a saline solution. It was a, a thicker solution. That's, it's not coming to mind right now, but something that wouldn't pump out as quickly. Isn't that funny how when you're going through in treatment, you think I'm never going to forget any of this. Right? And then you forget. <laughs> I mean, I'd have to, you really I'd have do. to read a, I kept a blog over the years, you know, but I have to read a book to remember all this stuff. Maybe I will go ahead and review it. <laughs> um, but it, it, it was, it was a thicker solution that moved much more slowly out of the mm. pump and so but it, you know it didn't still required you know regular refills and everything sure so yeah and had that in for five years too um there's a, a lot of times that i've actually regretted getting my port out because my veins are still horrible really and were they horrible you mean since the treatment yeah i and i didn't ever have any actual ivs and have any treatment through ivs they were all through the port but it just I don't know what it did, but I am the hardest draw. And so my oncologist has said, if you get recurrence, the port is going back in. Mm -hmm. You don't have any choice, you know. But they had to take my port out when I had the mastectomy. It was in the way. Okay. So I didn't have a choice or I would have probably left it in for longer. All right, then. Well, okay, so let's go back. So they told you perhaps we're going to do a uh, insert a port tomorrow. Which they did. And they said, here's your choices. They said, um... We would like to do a scan in the morning and then put the port in. They wanted to do a PET scan. I'm sure you're very familiar with those. Mm -hmm. So the PET scan, we, have we you can, explained we, these We can yet? tell anybody who's listening, though. We never know which podcast someone's going to press play on right. first. So. so the PET scan was probably the weirdest scan I ever had because you show up. They make you confirm like 17 times that you're coming because they get this crazy nuclear tiny little bottle of substance that only is created for your body and so if you don't show up they all freak out and you get there for me i got there they put me in a dark room with a recliner mm -hmm. and nothing else they said you can't watch tv you can't be on your phone you can't talk you can't move you can't do anything you're just gonna be in this dark room for an hour we're going to give you an infusion. You can take no more than 20 steps to get to the scan table and get on it. And then we'll scan you. Yeah. And so the folks who are listening uh, with the with the PET scan, what they're doing is they're radiating sugar. So they inject radioactive sugar into your bloodstream. Oh. And they don't want you moving because they don't want to. Uh, I mean, I'm not a physician. <laughs> and I'm... <laughs> And I'm trying to remember, but what I recall is, you know, they didn't want us moving or, you know, watching television or listening to music because they didn't want it. To, they didn't want us stimulating uh, anything. anything, you know, within us. And so, as many people know, cancer feeds on sugar. Of the many things it feeds on, it feeds on sugar. And so, when they mm -hmm. inject the radioactive sugar into your body, you know, 45 minutes later, you know, it has found its way to any cancer in your body, as well as, you know, a variety of other areas of your body, but, but they're familiar with that. It's so they can locate, you know, where it is in your body. And so they gave you the PET scan. Yeah. And um, they don't usually give you your results to those very quickly, you know, mm. unfortunately. But they just left me on the table and went and got my oncologist. And he came in and said... We're going to inject you with a little bit more, but you're stage four. Like that. He just flapped that right out of his mouth and walked out of the room. And I was like, what? Yeah. Yeah. And then just left me on the table. <laughs> so, yeah. 
And then um, after the scan, they had me come to his office and that's kind of when they dropped the bomb. Like I already knew I had cancer. I didn't think it could get any worse. And he said, we don't really know how to treat this. We've called a myriad of doctors because we've never seen this at stage four. And um, they've told us that you probably have about six weeks to live and it's probably not worth treating. Oh my goodness. And I'm like, excuse me, come again? I didn't even cry. I was literally just like, I felt like I left my body because I was like, what? There's no greater moment that defines reality than when somebody says that you're dead. I can't imagine what that must have been like. And I was a single mom, two little kids. Oh, how old were they at that time? So I was diagnosed in 2011 and my son just turned 18. So what is he that? Was, he was eight. Uh, nine. And my daughter was six. Yes. Wow. I was actually going through my divorce. I wasn't even mm. divorced yet. And they tell you, you have six weeks to live. And six weeks from 11-11 of 2011 is Christmas. <laughs> so I'm curious right. about something. When yeah. they told me that I had cancer, mm -hmm. both times, uh, I'm barely hearing what they're telling me because what I'm thinking of is managing my life. Like mm -hmm. the first diagnosis, it was, okay, well, um, when am I going to work and how are we going to pay the bills? And, you know, we had a five-month-old baby and mm -hmm. um, my wife at the time was not working. I was working. She was taking care of the baby. And, uh, wow. or wait, no, actually she was still working then with bringing the baby to work. And then when I got diagnosed the second time, I didn't have a job at the time, but still, I don't really hear what they're saying. All I'm thinking about is everything that I have going on in my life and the kids and mm -hmm. how am I going to do all this? And I'm just can't imagine. I'm curious. Do you recall your thoughts or were you just, were you just in shock and just kind of emotionless. No, I remember very vividly what my thoughts were. My first thought was, how am I going to pay for this? Yeah. I don't have, cause I don't have insurance, which I ha I'm just fr like, quite frankly, it is very much in the forefront. Everyone I've ever talked to that's gone through cancer, the financial destruction is so real. Mm -hmm. It's so real. And you have no idea until you enter into it, how real it is and how massive your bills are. So that was my first thought. And then my second thought was, I'm getting divorced because I didn't want my kids around my husband. And now I'm going to die and they're going to live with him full time. Uh, I so appreciate the honesty of that answer. Like that's not even the honesty, but just like, you know, that's just what's so. That's how we tend to think about the things that matter most. Not about the diagnosis, not about how this is going to go. How am I going to pay for this? And what's going to happen to my kids? Exactly. And I don't want to pretend that I can... Um, I was not in your position both times. My insurance was pretty fantastic and oh, bless your heart. and not working gets really expensive. Having oh, no income. Yeah. Um, that, that was, uh, my big struggle was that I was bet. how to pay the bills. And, uh, yeah. So yeah, those were your thoughts. Who's going to take care of my kids and how am I going to pay for this? Yep. So I remember they gave me all of these options about, you know, you can treat it, you cannot treat it, we can try a little bit of this or a little bit of that. I mean, they literally just unloaded so many options that I think 
after the second option, I, I couldn't, I wasn't even hearing them anymore. Do you know me what too. I mean? Like your mind is just, your mind is so not in that room anymore. It's, you immediately go to your family. I mean, you just, I'm like, I don't even want to talk about this anymore. And yeah, I tell um, people too, if they call upon me when they get diagnosed, I, I recommend that they bring a person with them who has a notebook and a pen because yes. you're probably not going to hear anything your doctor says. You yep. think you'll hear them. You're going to hear them, but your thoughts are going to go to other places and you're soon not going to be following the track of the conversation. You're going to be very distracted. Well, and you're also, you sort of only hear, for me, I remember only hearing the worst stuff. Like I left with no hope because my brain shut off and didn't hear that there was some good possibilities. My brain just went all the way down the road of, all I, all I remember, honestly, driving home was six weeks is Christmas. Oh, my goodness. Six weeks is Christmas. How am I going to do this? <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, they may have said, you know, statistically, you have six weeks. They may have told you. you I mean, do you remember? Because like, I, I think we often hear things sometimes different from how they're actually said. Now, they may have said, statistically, sure. you have six weeks. And it doesn't matter how they said it, as now that I'm asking you. You, know, you hear them say six weeks to live, potentially six weeks, possibly six weeks. <laughs> Whatever right. language they used, you heard six weeks. You're right. like, okay, so I am going to be dead by Christmas. Right. And here you are. And you think, and I thought about like the craziest stuff, like not... I started thinking about the dumbest stuff like, well, who's going to be Santa and who's going to wrap the presents and who's going to take down the tree and, mm. and what, you know, who's gonna, you know, if I'm, if I'm getting divorced, like if you don't have a spouse who plans the funeral, who speaks at the funeral, yeah, who like just random crazy stuff. But then I remember thinking, Oh my gosh, I have to go home and tell my kids. Cause I was of the mind I wasn't going to like not tell them or fake it or tell them something else. Like I thought if I have six weeks, I'm going to be very truthful with them even at a young age, because I just felt like that was the right thing to do. And I think everybody makes their own choice when it comes to how they deal with cancer and their kids. And I don't think anybody's right or wrong. I think you just do what you think is yeah. best. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I have my own opinions, but I, I'm not a big fan of advice and I don't <laughs> tell people what they should do. If people ask me what I did or what I would do, I will give that answer. Right. Um, but yeah, you w wanted to tell your kids. And so you drove home from that appointment and sat down with your kids. So I stopped and got Happy Meals at McDonald's because mm. you should have a Happy Meal when you're about to tell your kids that you're going to be dead. And we ate dinner and they could tell. Kids are very perceptive. Yeah. And they knew that I'd been at the doctor and they knew that something was wrong just by the way that I was acting. And so we finished dinner and then I just said, hey, listen, the doctors told me today that I have cancer. And I said, I'm sure you've heard that word before. But I know as a kid, you don't really know what that means. It's just a scary word. And my son said, I've heard that word. And my daughter said, I don't know what that is. Is that like a boo-boo? Oh, my gosh. And I said, cancer is when there's bad guys inside of your body trying to kill you. 
And my daughter's eyes got really big and she said, are you going to die? And I said, yep. And my son said, when are you going to die? And I said, well, I don't know if I'm going to be here for Christmas. Oh, Carrie. Yeah. And you know what? They really didn't know what, they really didn't know what to do. They just sat there with their little Happy Meal toy in their hands. I remember my son had his little Happy Meal toy in his hand, and they just sat there. Like, they didn't cry. They didn't speak. They didn't hug me or anything. They just, they just sat there and looked at me. Because as a mom, you're supposed to have the answers. Right. And I didn't have an answer. All I could tell them was, I don't, I'm not going to be here. And I just didn't know what to do. So I did. I got up and did the dishes. And they just sat there. And then my daughter went in the bathroom for a long time. And my son, I could feel him standing behind me. And so I turned around. And he, I had made him an apron out of shark fabric. Mm. And he had his sharp shark apron on. And I said, what's up? Are you going to help me do the dishes? And he said, Mom, you need to teach me how to cook because somebody needs to feed Gracie when you die. And he went and got um, a dozen eggs out of the refrigerator. And he said, I think I can cook eggs. Will you show me how? I know Gracie likes eggs. We cooked a lot of eggs that night. Yeah. It like it's like it had it's like his egg had to be perfect or we couldn't stop making eggs. I think it was some weird way of him trying to process or prove that it was going to be okay. I, I and that's really all I remember about that night. I don't remember going to bed. I don't remember I don't even I I don't even remember telling my mom or anybody else. I only remember that experience with my kids. And I remember um, I went in the bathroom because my daughter had been in there for a long time. And when she finally came out, she'd left the light on. And I went in to turn the light off in the bathroom. And she had thrown her Happy Meal up in the bathtub. She threw her Happy Meal into the bathtub? She threw, she threw it up. She oh, barfed. my goodness. She had gone in the bathroom and thrown her Happy Meal up into the bathtub. Oh my goodness. Like she couldn't even make it to the toilet. And that's, that's, I don't remember telling anybody else that I had cancer, but I remember telling my kids. Mm. And I always remember that. I always, I remember what my house smelled like, what my kids were wearing, what the light was like outside. Like I remember everything about that whole moment of telling them and everything. That's one of my most vivid memories of cancer is telling my kids. When you're describing your son wanting to be able to cook eggs properly for his sister, you know, it, uh, over and over until he got it right. You know, just in my mind, it's just like, you know, this is like, sounds like you know in his mind you know i've got to feed my sister and if i can cook eggs you know like i'll be able to i don't want to say get through this like it it, it makes me wonder if like his mind was like 
grabbing onto something. I don't know right. if that was for hope or for, I mean, wow, I don't know. Have you ever asked him about that? Yeah, he doesn't remember cooking mm. eggs. He remembers eating his Happy Meal and he remembers me telling them that there was bad guys in my body. And that's all he remembers about that night. He doesn't remember the shark apron or cooking eggs or any of that. He doesn't remember it. I don't, I'm not surprised. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's trauma mm. to a kid. It's trauma to me as an adult, but that's trauma to a kid, especially when your parents are not, I mean, we had, we, I had left my husband with them like six months to the day prior to that. So we were already in this new season of life, you know, trying to figure out how to single mom it. And he was already having to kind of step up a little bit, even though you try not to do that when you get divorced, your kids end up taking over some of those yeah. roles, you know? And I think to him it was, I don't know if he was trying to prove something or I've talked about it with my therapist and, and he's, he's told me several things like maybe it was his, he, he might have felt like my cancer was his fault. For somehow when, when kids hear that, they think they did something wrong and that's why their parent is sick. Yeah, I've heard. So my counselor has said, you know, sometimes kids, you know, maybe he wanted to do it just to prove that he could do something right. Maybe he wanted to do it because he needed to know he could keep, take care of him and his sister. But, you know, he, he, he didn't stop until he had cooked a perfect egg that night. I mean, I think we went through almost two dozen eggs. Oh my goodness. I know. And it's eight and a half years later, now as we have this conversation. And now, if you ask my kids about their mom's cancer, they will say the exact same thing that I say. It is the greatest blessing that ever came into our lives. 150%. Can you say more about that? It changed everything about who we were as people, how we operated as a family, the way we saw the world. What we saw was important back then quickly became not important. And what, it just changed everything about us. There's such a strength and resilience that I see in my kids. It's actually given them, um, they're so mature and so wise and so seasoned that they actually struggle in high school with their friends because they just think their friends are stupid. Mm -hmm. Cause they're like, they're that he's my, my daughter will be like, my friends are freaking out because their bands don't match their hoodie. And she's like, I just look at them and think, why is that a problem? Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. And my son, he has a really hard time dating because the girls are just not strong, not, they won't fight for what they want, you know, like they just, they haven't been through anything. And, and he's like this 18 year old with like 50 years of life experience mm. crammed into eight years, you know? Yeah. And he's an athlete. 
He's a he's a big 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 athlete. He's leaving for college um, this summer on a full ride um, athletic scholarship for soccer. Fantastic! And from the moment from the moment I was diagnosed, um, he's never not worn pink at a game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember seeing the pictures on social media of him wearing pink for yeah. you. And he st- and he still does. I mean, when he played basketball, he had a pink armband on, and they told him he, he couldn't have anything like that on the floor. I mean, this is high school mm-hmm. basketball, pretty serious stuff, right? And he just said to the ref, "I wear pink for my mom, and so if you're not going to let me wear pink, then I'll just sit the bench." And what did the ref say? And the ref said, "I guess you can mm-hmm. wear pink." <laughs> I mean, what else is the ref? Well, say, you right? know, some people are amazing. <laughs> It is incredible what some people will do and say and completely miss. You know, I also was really clear that within a month of being diagnosed that whether I lived or died, my cancer was a gift. Now, I don't know if that was your point of view, but mine was that. But regardless, I also I also shared the gratitude for what, you know, for the, for the cancer and for all the pain and the treatment and, and the no, but for the awareness that it brought to me and for how it suddenly yes. woke me up to what mattered. And I'm still the same yes. jerk that I was the day before I got diagnosed the first time. But I really, <laughs> I have my, you know, my Stop. commitments are, uh, you know, to who I am in the world and how I show up and to, re- you know, hosting this podcast and, and, mm-hmm. and how I contribute in the world. And, and, uh, but like you said, you know, what matters and, and, you know, what I devote my time to got really clear to me when I got diagnosed. Very and much so. as, you know, I've gotten older, it's only gotten more clear. And uh, I, I have a good friend who she, every time I tell her that cancer was a gift, she, she had cancer as well. She was like, I hate when you say that. And I'm like, <laughs> I get it. I, I, I want, you yes. know, to anyone who's listening... I will never say if you have cancer that your cancer was a gift or that anyone's cancer was a gift because I don't get to say that. It's it's each individual, you know, however life is for us, that's what's true. And it just happened to be the case for me and it sounds like it was very much the case for you and your family and your kids. I would have to say for me, it was a gift as a woman because I was so incredibly consumed with checking all the boxes of what an attractive female was supposed to look like according to our culture, mm-hmm. right? If I, if I were to show you, so, so I teach maturation in the state that I live in. Maturation is a class that they teach to fifth grade boys and girls to teach them about the development of their bodies. In the state that I live in, it's not sex ed because this is an abstinence only state. You are in Utah. It's just about, yes, it's just about the development of their bodies. And so um, I actually end my last 10 minutes of my maturation presentation with my cancer story. And I show a picture of myself before cancer. And I had long, long blonde hair all the way down my back. And I was starving myself and super skinny. And I had double D boobs and bleach teeth and a fake tan and fake eyelashes. And, you know, all the things that's, that checked all the boxes, mm-hmm. my nails, you know, all that stuff. And, um, 
And one of the things that I freaked out about the most in that six weeks that I was supposed to not survive was what I was going to look like at my funeral. Like people are going to see me without my long blonde hair at my funeral. So I, I'm like, I don't, I want a closed casket. Like I don't want anybody to see I that. I see. It was carrying on into your diagnosis and uh, concerns about death. Yeah, I was really concerned about, you know, the physicality of what I was going to look like. And, and what the gift that cancer was for me for that is everything that I ever feared about how I looked as a woman happened. Mm. I lost my hair. I lost my hair. I lost my fingernails. I lost my toenails. I lost my eyelashes and my eyebrows. They, they cut my breasts off. I had a radical bilateral mastectomy, which means both sides, both breasts, Plus, underneath my arms, the lymph nodes down my arms. Plus, they took huge chunks of my chest wall. Um, then they said, the best that we can hope for is to also take out your entire reproductive system because it's going to spread there pretty soon. So they took my uterus and my ovaries and my cervix. Like, everything that made me a female, they took it. And boy, did they take it quick. Like, in six months, everything was gone. Okay. I. That is... The removal of so much of your body. Yeah. And not by choice. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out which question to ask first. Like, I mean, (laughs) with that much of your body removed, I mean, my surgery, the first surgery I had, I had a I had colorectal cancer the first time, stage two. So they removed uh, a good, maybe like a third or quarter of my large intestine and my rectum and the anus because the sphincter was in the anus. So now I have a permanent colostomy. And so they had to, they had to cut me from the mm-hmm. sternum down to as far down in the pelvis as they can go. And then when they rolled me over and then they cut out, you know, and they went through the backside as well. I mean, they really got into me. And that recovery wow. was a lot. There was a, there was, there oh, was a lot of imagine. stiff scar tissue. And, you know, yeah, Ew. just months and, I mean, of, of doing everything I could to soften the scar tissue so I could start moving my body. And, uh, but it was still localized, in a sense, compared to your surgery. Like you had the the what you said the radical bilateral mastectomy, and then your uterus, ovaries, and cervix. Right. I mean, everything that made me a female. So I'm curious. Where do you want to begin? Like, how did that affect you? How did that impact you? So, <laughs> I remember taking pictures in a full-length mirror before they started Mm. cutting on me. I still had my long hair, I had my breasts, I had my curves in my body, and I felt like a beautiful woman. And, you know, and so I took those pictures because I thought, well, I'll just take them so I can compare. And I just want to, actually, if I could chime in for one second. really want to point to, like, the cultural conversation, the cultural agreements is that a woman is going to, you know, do her best to achieve this look and this presentation mm-hmm. and, and, and absolutely. Yeah. And you were, you were in agreement with that. And then you're being told, well, this is all yeah. being removed now. 
Yep. <laughs> We're going to take these away permanently and you're going to lose your hair and et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. So this, I just, it, it's so important for me that, to, to acknowledge that in these conversations that, you know, we really get woken up to, you know, how we're living uh, based on the cultural conversation versus our, where, where our hearts are and what really matters to us. But please continue. So much. Yeah, we, that's the statement right there is we just get woken up. You just get woken <sighs> up to everything. So my follow-up to that is standing in front of a full-length mirror with no hair, no eyelashes, no eyebrows. Actually, not a hair on my entire body. Chemo is like the best <laughs> wax job you'll ever have in your life, right? It's like a Brazilian on steroids, I'm saying. And then my fingernails and toenails no. fell off from my chemotherapy. Oh my and then I had no breasts. And then I had massive scars from, you know, the reproductive organs being taken out. And, and I just was standing in front of a full-length mirror looking at myself and just thinking, am I even still a female? Like, can I even check that box on my driver's license anymore? Like, nothing that makes me female is still here. It's gone. I am an alien. I look like an alien. And I have to tell you that that was the most beautiful, profound moment I have ever had in my human existence as a female. Because in that moment, my spirit and my soul said to me, it's not about your hair or your breasts or the size of your pants or the house you live in or the car you drive or any of the things that you were so worried about checking the box that makes you valuable and beautiful and important as a woman. Because you still have your heart. And your heart is what makes you important. And you can still give. And you can still be a good mom. And you can still be a good friend. And you can still make people laugh. None of that was taken away from you. The stuff that got taken away from you is all just stuff that's on the surface. What makes you a woman is your spirit and your soul and your heart. So get over it. Hmm. It's just boobs. That's beautiful. And I spent every day since then just falling in love with the body mm. I have now. And just looking at my scars on hard days and thinking, oh, this day's not hard. I've had harder. <laughs> mm. And I did get reconstruction. I had breast reconstruction. I decided to go ahead and go through with that because I was still young and I was mm-hmm. single again and I still had some of that programming that I needed to work through. And so this last fall in September, um, I had a second mastectomy and had all the implants taken out and all the rest of the tissue of my breast taken off and had a flat yeah, the explants and the, uh, yeah. And now I have absolutely nothing because the implants were trying to kill me. I was so sick from the implants. It was worse than the cancer was. Yeah. I had a, uh, guest on who was telling me about, she had her, uh, she said she had explants. She had her implants removed because she was getting so sick and couldn't figure out why and finally put it together and realized it was the implants that were making her so sick. Yes. Is she better now? She. Yeah. I'm like a different yeah, person. She, she said instantly she was better. You know. Instantly. The next day I was like, whoa, this is crazy. Hmm. Well, congratulations on, you know, Thank you. the 
you know, awakening to who you truly are and that this vessel that we are living inside of is not who we are. No. No. Thank goodness. Yeah. I just, I just recently got present to, or I would say, um, for me, I got what it was to love myself uh, about a year ago. And just realized that uh, through a quite shocking experience that I recognized that for me, loving myself is getting that there's nothing to fix. That everything about me that works in the world and everything about me that doesn't work in the world is exactly who I am. And that's what I bring to the world. And that's where my strengths come from. And that's everything that... uh who I am, just trying to put the put the words to it right now. Uh, just get that for every one of us on this planet, like the gift that we are, includes everything that maybe we don't do so well sometimes, uh, where we still need to grow, where we where we still have complete blind spots and what we don't see about ourselves. That's the perfect design, and that's for us to to live with with gratitude and. Uh, you know, for me, and then I got, oh my gosh, like, yeah, I, I felt I couldn't love myself until I fixed these things about myself. And I got like, yeah, you're climbing a mountain that never ends, pal. Yeah. Yeah, you, yeah, you get it. And for those of you that are listening, you might be at the very beginning of your cancer journey and you're thinking to yourself, these people have lost their <laughs> freaking minds because all I can think about is how nauseous I am from chemo right now and how much everything hurts and how scared I am. There's so much fear when you're going through cancer, but you, you like, you have to just stop. You have to breathe. You have to stop. You have to slog your way through it. I threw a lot of potatoes. Please explain that. (laughs) Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the struggle and the grief and the hurt and, and going through the treatments and all those changes. Well, I never felt like I could have those moments to grieve because I was in survival mode as a single mom. I still had to work. I had chemo every single week on Thursdays. I would go home. The shakes would start about five hours later. I would uncontrollably Mm -hmm. shake all weekend until about 3 p.m. on Sunday. And then I could take a shower and eat some soup. And then I'd go to work on Monday. (laughs) I still had to pay the bills. I was on call. I was delivering babies when I was having chemo. I was on call. I was crawling out of bed in the middle of the night and showing up to burst with no hair. And it was crazy. But, and I don't know that I could do it again, but at that time I had little kids and you become a, you become like you have Herculean strength when you're trying to survive. Oh, that's and take fantastic. Care of kids, no, the chemo, that I was on six months of chemotherapy and it laid me out. I was so sick. Yeah. Um, it wasn't so much nausea, but I was so poisoned by the treatment yes. that I wasn't able to work. Yes. I I could I couldn't think clearly. You know, we we had a, a little yeah. dog, a little Shih Tzu, and you know, uh, you know, I live in New York State. It gets really cold up here, and you know, I let the dog out, and about forty five minutes later, when it was about six degrees out, I realized that I'd let the dog out and I'd forgotten. Oh, Thank no. God I didn't fall asleep. I opened the door. He's just looking at me like, "Are you out of your mind, dude?" 
I weigh 12 pounds. Like, what, what are you thinking? And I, I, I told um, my wife at the time, I said, okay, so I don't get to let the dog out anymore. That's off the list. Because mm-hmm. having the dog freeze to death on my watch is, you know, no. Yeah. Not okay. Like, I, I couldn't work. I was sick and... And, and, and I mean, they were, they would tell me, you know, make sure you get lots of exercise or as much as you can. My exercise was walking from the couch to the refrigerator, the dining oh, room yeah. table and back. I was so sick. My system is very sensitive. Yeah. You know, if there's a side effect, I get it. You know, <laughs> they would say to me like, wow, you, we, we've never seen the side effects like this before. I'm like, yeah, well. <laughs> Hi, my name's Bert. Me. Nice to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the poster child for side effects. If, you know, if there's anything you want to know about side effects, uh. We we can I can discuss that uh, in, in in depth with you. I was really really lucky because the nurse practitioner for my oncologist, her and I just morphed into one weird person through my treatment, and she started to play because I had chemo every week. I was it's so the treatment they gave me you're only supposed to get every six weeks, but she said let's try it every week and see how you do because what do you have to lose, right? I was because like, sure. they they gave you six weeks to live, so they were like let. Let's, let's try to hit you hard because we don't want that to happen. Yes. And I and I opted for treatment because I thought if I'm going to die, I want to be able to look my little beautiful children in the face and say, I tried everything. And some people would choose not to treat and, and that's fine too. But for me, I knew the only way that I could deal with my own death and that my kids maybe someday could deal with it is to know that I had tried everything. So I opted for treatment and they hit me every single week. I would have my staff meeting was in the chemo room. My staff came for staff meeting while I had chemo. (laughs) So I didn't even have to miss work that day. (laughs) Wow. You're fierce. You are fierce. For me being busy though, like the, the weekends when I was home and I was uncontrollably shaking, I didn't ever throw up from chemo. Um, I just shook. Like I couldn't stop shaking the weekends that I was home, I not I didn't feel the worst just because of chemo, but because I was home and I acted like I was sick. When I was at work, I didn't really have enough time to to be sick. I just had to kind of get through it. So yeah. I, yeah, I don't know that I could do that again. But so she she fiddled with my um, treatment a lot, and and I'm in healthcare, so I could make my own suggestions. You know, it wasn't something that I had just found on you know the Onion or Google or something. And hmm. so I would say, you know, well, what if we put a, a bag of normal saline in and hydrate me right before they put the chemo in? And, you know, what if we infused a lot slower this time? And so we played with my chemo a ton. And that actually helped me a lot so that I could work. Because the first time mm. they gave me chemo, they dropped it in through my port so fast. And I immediately went uh, into anaphylaxis. And I couldn't. Oh, I, oh, it was bad. Like, it was super bad. And so I was like... So we should probably tweak that a little bit. <laughs> so you want to let listeners know what anaphylaxis is? So I had a massive allergic reaction and I stopped breathing and I went into respiratory arrest and um, they ran a code on me, which is where they um, had to intubate me and breathe for me and give me a bunch of other medications. Mm. And basically you could die from anaphylaxis very easy, especially when they're um, putting what's making you have the reaction straight into your heart through the port. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so we, we, so we played with it. So I had chemo for, um, six and a half months every single week for six and a half months. Um, they were trying to, which was funny because I wasn't even supposed to live that long. Right. Yeah. 
So, um, but I did. <laughs> so, a little sidestep here. So, what was Christmas like? <laughs> so, Christmas was that was our most that was our most memorable Christmas actually. Um, I have um, several friends that are police officers for the city of Provo where I live, and they found out that I what was going on um, from people that they knew at the hospital. And um, I got a phone call about a week before Christmas and just a voice that said, are you home? And I said, well, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty tired. Who is this? And then they hung up and I didn't know who it was. That's not creepy at all. No, not at all. And then there's, then there's a <laughs> knock at the door, right? Then there's a knock at the door and I'm like, okay. So I open the door and my entire street is covered in police cars with their flashing lights on and there's two oh fire gosh. there's two fire trucks on my street with their lights on and I'm thinking that like there's like a drug thing going down and the SWAT team's out and they're telling me to hit the deck like I have no idea what's going on and they had me bring my kids to the door and they had they had Santa sitting on top of the fire truck oh my god and the Provo Police Department and the Provo Fire Department Came into my house with Santa, and they put a thousand presents under our tree, <laughs> and they oh, wow. um, shoved $100 bills everywhere that they could find that I couldn't tell that they were doing, and they stayed and visited, and they gave my kids all their phone numbers to call them if they ever need anything, their cell phone numbers, okay. and they took pictures, and um, it was an awesome Christmas, not because of what we got. But because of right, what we yeah. received, does that make sense? It's not That's about what we got. It's it about sure what we received. It was the support of the community, knowing that even though I was a single mom, I was not single. I was not alone in it. And we just had so much support. And there was gift cards shoved everywhere for groceries. Hmm. And, and it was just a great Christmas. And on Christmas morning, I was... Feeling pretty good. I'd had chemo on Christmas Eve, actually, but I was feeling really good. Wow. And I could hear my kids outside my bedroom door in the morning saying, well, you go in. No, I don't want to go in and see your dad. You go in. Because <laughs> remember, I told them I wouldn't be there for Christmas. Oh, goodness gracious. And so oh. they're, they're fighting over who has to open the door because they don't. They're fighting over who has to see me dead first. Had it dawned on you to let them know that you were going to be around or were you just so into your treatment that you kind of didn't think to say? Yeah, mm -hmm. I was just like, I figured, well, if I was there today, I'll be there tomorrow. And right. so in the mind of a child, it's like the mommy said are going to be gone. I mean, and I right. always think it's important to, to, to for people who are listening to point out, you know, um, oversights that we make, you know, and that's a wonderful one to point out. To. It's like, I, I didn't think to tell him before bed. It's like, no, it doesn't mean I'm going to die on Christmas. I just thought I wasn't going to make it. But clearly, <laughs> good chance I'll be here in the morning. Actually, <laughs> in fact, kids, I'll be here in the morning. But, oh, my goodness. So they're thinking like, well, mommy said she's not going to be alive. Yeah, this Christmas. is it. Here's the deadline, right? So I stood up <sighs> did on you my... Mean, did you mean like Christmas morning or Christmas night? Like, you... <laughs> Who wants to knock on the door? Oh. So I, so I stood up on my bed and pulled the sheet up over my head. And so when my kids opened the door after they quit bickering, I, I pretended that I was a ghost on my bed. <laughs> You're a nut. 
<laughs> so you think that's funny, but you know what? Is all of a sudden I hear oh, the sound. Oh, wait a second. Oh, no. So all of a sudden I hear the sound, so I pull the sheet back off my head, and my son had just turned and puked all over the hallway because it freaked him out. <laughs> oh, my goodness, no. <laughs> Talk about a backfire. <laughs> wait, what was your intention with to have the sheet over you? Well, I was just like, I was like, ooh, and I was you're, just going to... Because you, right? you have fun and goof around with your kids. Sure, and I was and just going to be like, look, I'm still here. Merry Christmas. You know, like everything's going to be fine. We're doing good. But that was not how it was received on the other end. Whoops. <laughs> what was the uh, recovery process for that little uh, mistake? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, he did get a Wii that year for Christmas. So he was <laughs> distraction. That was the recovery distraction <sighs> and lots of apologies. Yeah. Oh my goodness! Yeah, you're gonna make them. I'm gonna make them laugh or make him puke in horror. <laughs> <I know. laughs> Mom win right there, right? <laughs> oh my goodness! I know. So Christmas is, has a different meaning to us now too. Um, we're Christians, so of course we celebrate Jesus, but we also mm-hmm. just celebrate another year that we're together and oh waking goodness. up together on Christmas morning. So Chris, Christmas has a very a very deep meaning to us outside of the Christian Christmas and the commercial part of Christmas. It's, it's a celebration of life for us to still all be together. Absolutely. And so we love that. I bet you do. It was, it was, it was coming up, you know, you were so close to Christmas uh, when you got diagnosed. Yeah. And it was, uh, I mean, incredibly, you know, six weeks away was a milestone. And uh, it's 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 like it's representative of that. Now, when Christmas comes, it's like here we are again. It's another Christmas, yeah. So I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Do you remember, um, like, what season or what time of year either one of your diagnosis was? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, in March of two thousand and seven. Oh, coming up on an anniversary. Yeah. March of 2007, I was diagnosed with stage 2 rectal cancer, and then my birthday was about two weeks later. I turned 37. Oh, are you a March baby, too? Uh, April 9th. Oh, April 9th. Yeah, so it was, you know, I don't remember the date anymore, you know, but, you know, it was, uh, you know, middle end, between the middle and the end of March, and, uh, yeah, I remember that you know, it wasn't raining that day because I walked to the neighbor's house to borrow his speakerphone so we could call my family and then my wife's family. And the second time I got diagnosed was uh, September of 2011, September 1st. And it was a nice day. My doctor's office called to tell me there was a spot on the uh, CT scan and they're pretty certain that I had a recurrence. And I think that was maybe like on the twenty, the thirtieth of twenty ninth of September. Then no, uh, of excuse me, twenty uh, ninth to thirtieth of August. Then they called me back on the first. They said, "Yeah, it's cancer." So I mean, you know, we have to do the biopsy, but we're pretty certain you have a recurrence in your liver. And I hung the phone up and thought, "Oh my gosh, like I'm gonna die." And I walked downstairs, and my boy was, uh, he just turned, he was going to be five, he was almost five, mm-hmm. 
and I was living, renting a room for my buddy because my wife and I had split up about mm-hmm. 10 months prior to that. And he looked at me and said, hey, Papa, can we go to the waterfall and play? So I said, oh of course, of course we can. And we went to the waterfall, and the weather was nice. And we would we would go to the creek, and we'd build cairns with the stones. It was, uh, you know, you know some of my music, and uh, yes, I was standing on one side of the creek. He was on the other. You know, the water's inches high, so it wasn't really a big deal. He was about mm-hmm. five, six feet away from me, and he's happily playing, and I'm thinking I'm going to die, and I suddenly imagined uh you know in in greek mythology how you know when a person dies you put two gold coins on their eyes so when they get to hades they want to get to hades and to cross the river Styx, you know they need to pay passage to to charon to cross the river Styx. and this song just came into my head you know you know don't need no charon hades river ride i ain't going nowhere i'm sticking right by your side dead man walking and the song just wrote it. Yeah, the song just wrote itself in a moment. It was. It was. It was just dark. Uh, it, it was. It's dark in delivery, like in sound, mm-hmm. in the way it's written. But it was a love song to him, saying like, "I'm not going anywhere, but like my body might not, you know, be alive, but I'm staying here with you. I, I don't need your damn coins because I'm not going anywhere." And uh, what a moment! Yeah. Yeah, and then I lived. <laughs> I know, right? We're so spiteful, aren't we? We just lived. <laughs> so my question, well, my question was. Wait a second. That was, that was. Uh, I was diagnosed we September. Were, I was diagnosed uh, what, what two months and, and and a week, two months, ten days uh, before you. Yeah. My second diagnosis. And our kids are really close in age, and I think your first diagnosis probably landed pretty close to my birthday because my birthday is March twenty fourth. Wow, yeah, absolutely. My stepson is now 21, and my little guy is 13. Isn't that crazy? <sighs> so my the reason I asked you about those dates is because do you ever have a physical, physiological reaction when those dates come? Do you, do you ever feel sick? Do you feel... Like I actually have a reaction. A no, I'm I'm not an anniversary person at all. Like people have anniversaries of when they lose a loved one. Yeah. When they lost a loved one, and th- they know the day is coming up, and then the day comes, and then yeah. there's the whole thing. Not me, not at all. I don't have any. I can only believe people when they say that that happens for them. Yeah. I don't have that experience. I uh, I- I'll forget that. Oh wait, this you know, like my my dad died on my birthday, which was actually a beautiful thing because. He was dying. He had uh, dementia. They categorized it as Parkinson's syndrome. Right. But what happened is, you know, we got a, he was in the, uh, the dementia ward at, at the hospital. And uh, you know, he, he couldn't live at home with my stepmom. He just was, he was too far gone. And uh, when I got the phone, my sister called me because uh, my stepmom had called her. And my sister calls me at work and she says, dad's dying. You know, we have to, uh, we have to go. And so I told my boss and called the airport. Now I you know, went home and, and and got there and flew there. And so we get there and you know, we figured it'd be a few days and 
and it's four days and it's five and it's six. And they're like, uh, we said, how long does this process usually happen? And they said, well, usually the process is over by now because he stopped swallowing and he had a DNR. Oh, right. And so what they said, you know, they gave him, they would just wet his lips, a little water, and they gave him a little, um, sedative and, and, and something for pain. So as his body began to, uh, die, you know, he wouldn't suffer. And, uh, sixth day they were like yeah usually the process is over by now and then the seventh day then the eighth day is my birthday and my stepmom calls and she says you know she, we, we wake up and she's gone like what the heck happened she goes he's gone my sister goes he's gone she goes yeah he's, he's, he's gonna be gone very soon and she's like you said he was gone oh my gosh so we just throw some clothes on and get in the car and drive there and we stood around him holding hands, and in 15 minutes, he passed away. Wow. And uh, and that was on my birthday, and it hit me. It's like, that's what he was doing. He was waiting for my birthday, to be there for my birthday, and then wow. he moved on. And so, as beautiful as that is, and as grateful as I am that he held on, there's times on my birthday, I won't even remember that. My father died that day. Like, I just don't, I don't have that. Yeah. in me it's just but clearly you have a visceral <laughs> response to uh, these dates yeah yeah so well i think i was going through a lot of trauma besides just the cancer because i was also going through a divorce at the time and um my ex stopped all the divorce proceedings because he said it would be cheaper to wait for me to die than to pay for the divorce for his lawyer well, that's that's true <laughs> right <It's so> nice <laughs> of him <laughs> So he stopped the divorce proceedings, which the part that, of that that sucked for me is that I couldn't get the state's um, insurance. So I just... Oh, and he wasn't open to that conversation? No. For As a matter of fact, he didn't attend. He never showed up to any of the divorce hearings that we had. And the judge got so mad at him at one of the hearings that he called him from the courtroom and put him on speakerphone in front of everyone in the whole court and just railed on him and said, your, your wife is here. She's hooked up to her chemotherapy. She has a nurse with her. And you can't even show up again. So guess oh what? My. I'm giving her whatever she wants. And the judge hung up the phone and looked at me and said, what would you like? <laughs> <laughs> and so my, mm. my, my divorce became final on the day after my last treatment. Wasn't that nice? Oh my goodness! So the only time I have a physical, uh, like a physical response, though, is um, I always know that my mastectomy date is coming because my scars hurt on my chest. Mm. They hurt. It's like some weird alien thing or something that my scars mm. will start to hurt, and I'll be like, "Oh, I guess my mastectomy date is coming up." Perhaps you're just really. Uh, perhaps your body is as. You know, I don't really see the body and the mind as a separate, separate entities. You know, right. I, mean, I don't, I don't know who does, but I certainly don't. And it's like, you know, your, your body, you know, I, I believe the body holds memories, you know? Yes. And, you know, the date is coming and your body is, uh, responding. Yeah. I think my body is still grieving, you know? Yeah. You had quite the surgery and yeah. then the treatment to boot. And radiation. Did you have radiation? Oh, dear. I had radiation. Yeah, you had I've, radiation in all I, the wrong places. <laughs> I had 
So the radiation was for rectal cancer and the tumor was in the part of my rectum that was right at the sphincter muscle. So it was a pre-surgery chemo and radiation, you know, you know, five weeks of it all. Mm -hmm. And so Monday through Friday, I'd get chemo and radiation. I think I'd have said the chemo like every day for five weeks straight. It was, you know, keep going home with the, with the carrying little, little uh, mechanism. Yeah. But yeah, so I get radiation on my, uh, anus and then it would go through and then hit my uh testicles oh my gosh now in retrospect for those of you who are listening and might be facing something this difficult i would ask you know can we i don't know i'm gonna get graphic here can we pull my testicles up and out of the way can we wrap them in a little lead vest like the one i'm wearing but just a little (laughs) mini one (laughs) you know because um, they told me I was going to be sterile after the process, but you know the radiation, the radiotherapy. As you know, because you've had radiation, there's a sunburn on my anus. Then there's a sunburn on the sunburn, and a sunburn on the sunburn on the sunburn mm-hmm. for weeks. Well, on my testicles, there were uh, boils, oh my and gosh. the boils were about the size of my thumbnail, and then there'd be like four to five whiteheads on each boil. And I walked like I, I walked bow-legged oh, to yeah. keep my thighs from rubbing on these boils. And they eventually gave me this incredible uh, uh, burn, a bandage material. It's like a foam bandage material for burn victims. Mm-hmm. Um, something incredible that 3M makes. And I don't recall the name of it, but it, it, you can put it on burn tissue, on very delicate tender tissue when you remove it. You know, the adhesive holds well, and when you remove it, it doesn't pull anything. Mm-hmm. So they would put that on it. Um, you know, and it's put, medicated, too. Doesn't it have, like, the burn ointment in it? So it kind of That I didn't it? need, but I had the burn ointment on my anus because, I mean, oh. not only did I have a sunburn on the sunburn on the sunburn for five weeks. Wow. And then, of course, for those, if you don't know this about radiation, people who are listening, the... Uh, after you get your final radiation treatment, then you have like about another week of the accumulative effect of it. it just keeps building up and building up. And so with rectal cancer, every time you move your bowels, it goes past the sunburned area and irritates it more. Oh. And with the rectal cancer radiation, it bloats you and it gives you the runs. And I wore an adult diaper for a while. And so I'm constantly having this exposed tumor and sunburned anus just constantly being hit as I moved my bowels. It was like, they told me the only more painful radiation treatment is for uh, sinus cancer. They said that hurts more. Then I had post-surgery chemotherapy for six months, but there was no radiation after that. Nice. So... You also had radiation. I had radiation, but, and this is, this, some of this is very important for people that are listening to understand. Everyone's treatment is so different and everyone's reaction and response to the treatment is so different. And so Mm -hmm. my radiation was the easiest thing that I did of all of my stuff. I went every day. I lived two blocks from the hospital. From the moment I walked in the door until the moment I walked out was like less than 11 minutes every time. They had my my 
playlist from Spotify playing when I walked in. I laid down, put my mm. arm in the thing. They radiated. I got up. I left. I, I didn't feel sick from radiation. My burns didn't hurt. I started to get tired towards the end. I think I did 66 days of radiation, which is a lot for breast what? cancer. Yeah. But I didn't, like, at the end, I started getting tired, but I felt great. I mean, I was running again. I was starting to train for triathlon again. I I didn't have any problems with radiation at all. So your radiation was a good day at the spa? Yeah, I just went first thing every morning, and then I went for a run and took a shower and went to work. It was like, hey, whatever. So what part of you were they radiating? My breast. And under and, my arm. And it didn't burn your skin? It no, I mean, my, it was red. It looked like I had a sunburn. Didn't hurt at all. You are just one tough kid. I mean, no question. <laughs> I don't know. I felt... Uh, oh, my goodness. You went to work every day with chemo, you know, being on call in the middle of the night, and you had radiation. I mean, I am just a pussycat. Like, I, I, I am a... Uh, I'm just a little buttercup. <laughs> like, like I my body so. <clears throat> mentally not at all mentally i'm as i i believe that i'm about as tough as they get yes but physically my body was just like uh check please i'm like no we're yeah. staying my body did not you know it was it was my mind it was my you know i was clear that whether i lived or died now that i know i might die i'm gonna live like nobody's business i'm gonna be true to myself Amen. And like, if I look back at how I live now versus how I lived then in like 2007 and eight, mm -hmm. even then I was so many aspects of how I lived, you know, I was scared to be myself, you know, being a man and, you know, what's masculine and, uh, you know, cultural expectations of me. And, you know, I was right. breaking through those one after another. And I look back then compared to who I am now. And it's like, you know, I, still continue to do the same i'm so different and so much more free yes and willing to you know be me there was a point uh, a couple of years ago i was in a seminar and out of my own curiosity i just started looking at you know what is masculinity you know this whole thing about my being masculine and i started really getting i was in this inquiry of what is masculinity mm -hmm. and then about a weekend i said oh my gosh i don't care I'm going to be me. Yes! And if people in the world view me as masculine or not masculine or kind of masculine or not so masculine or really masculine, great. Do with right. it what you will. I'm going to be me. And and I know you'll categorize me. Why? Because when I'm walking down the street and I'm not paying attention to my thoughts, my mind is rattling away doing its own thing, evaluating people. And the more I learn to notice that thinking, mm -hmm. the more I the more I connect and have more joy in my life. So great example. Right now in 2020, there is an expression of what people are calling a gender fluidity. Right. And there's people who are identifying and expressing themselves in ways that don't fit inside my 49-year-old mind of male or female. Right. And I, in my mind, so what I noticed as I was looking at my own masculinity was that if I saw someone and I couldn't tell if they were male or female, not that I'm actually thinking about it, but the autopilot mind that never stops doing the evaluating, no matter where you go, it's always on doing its thing. Mm -hmm. Mine would say, is that a male or a female? And I noticed, I'm like, well, what if I don't care? Mm. Why does it matter? You don't care about your own masculinity. And then I noticed that I tend to 
retract and maybe not smile and maybe not visually engage with the person if I don't know which category they fit in, male or female. And I thought about how I would feel if people just kind of didn't notice me, kind of did a, like an unconscious, like not look at me kind of thing. The way if you can walk past a homeless person mm-hmm. and not look at them. And now when I see homeless people, I'll look at them and I'll smile or, or just, you know, give them an acknowledgement. And I noticed, wait, I have this, as you're talking about the cultural agreements, I have this cultural conversation in my mind to not acknowledge people if they don't fit into my category of male or female. And I just noticed that, oh my gosh, like I don't want to turn my heart away from another human being just because they don't fit into my category. I don't know what's happening with our culture and, the, and, the, and this transformation of whatever it is, but I just noticed like what's available to me. What was missing was connection with human beings. And we all, we all want to be loved. Yes. And we all want to be appreciated. And we all want to be, we all want to matter. Yep. And and I don't want to take that from somebody. And I saw that I could be a space for a person to matter simply by looking them in the eye. And uh, how did I get onto that? Just uh, yeah, this whole thing. Oh, oh, <laughs> because <laughs> I told you what a tough kid you are, and what a what right. a uh, what a what a little uh, t- t- delicate flower <laughs> I am. Yeah, well, so. and I think when you get into the, I think some of it comes with our age where I think we're the same age. So I think the wisdom comes with age, but cancer just sort of expedites that so that it's much quicker. I kind of have like. It, it does expedite it so well. It's, it's, it's if I could interrupt, it is yeah. a fantastic training tool. Yes. It says, I'm going to put you through the fastest training program. And the most efficient training program you've ever been a part of. Right. We're just gonna we're gonna put you through it at full speed. Yep. You're welcome. Yes. 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 And Whereas my of- former wife, she she I can't remember who she quotes. Maybe it's uh maybe it's uh uh um Chup, I don't remember, but you know, the quote that she that I'm gonna destroy right now is something <laughs> along the lines of, you know, it's the most efficient uh um curriculum that there is life provides you the most efficient curriculum for learning is just whether or not you want to hear it. And when you get cancer, many of us hear it loud and clear. And we're just like, wow, look how I've been living. Somebody, and for those of you who are listening, sorry, I've cut you off. How many times? I think I'm on a roll right now. (laughs) For those of you who are listening, like, I don't mean like, you know, how have I been living like any one of us are doing anything wrong? Because we're not, because we're only aware of what we're aware of. We, we go through life with blind spots until we see the blind spots. And then there's the next layer of blind spots and the next, mm-hmm. and it never ends. And it's just, when when I got diagnosed, and I can hear when Carrie got, you know, when you got diagnosed, a whole bunch of blind spots got really obvious. They all got disclosed. Now what's yes. next is more blind spots, but it's not that we, having blind spots is not living life the, the quote wrong way because you don't go through life without blind spots when you run out of blind spots i think you're dead yeah for sure <laughs> <laughs> or you're a narcissist one of the two <laughs> <laughs> one of the two right. oh, oh my goodness yes yes so go on uh, somebody asked me, somebody asked me the other day like if i had to define my experience with cancer in one phrase what would i say and i was like well Kind of an unfair question, but so what I said was it made me realize that the way I live my life now 
is as follows. I do what I feel and I feel what I do. Where before cancer, I did what I was supposed to do and I was scared to feel anything. Oh, I love that so much. I love that so much. I want to hear more, but I just want to say, yeah, I, I, I ignored my body. My yep. body was a beast of burden. And if my body wanted to get tired, I put caffeine in it. And if the hunger, and if I, and if I would turn off my hunger with caffeine and then I'd get a headache, I'd just take a painkiller and I moved through it and I didn't listen to my body mm-hmm. and I'm going to do what I want to do. And I got diagnosed and I thought, huh. <laughs> oh, that didn't work. <laughs> your but maybe it's time for you to listen to your body because your body's letting you know that whatever's going on right now. Is not working now. Am I saying that I caused it? No, but I'm saying that there's just a. I mean, heck, there there were signs, there were symptoms that that, yeah. that weren't weren't adding up to me that that may have, you know. Well, and for those of you that are going through it, that are listening, you are gonna go through so many different times during treatment and after treatment or whatever, where you're gonna think to yourself. That you did something to cause it. And we don't know. We don't know. Like, you can't do that. There's no way that anybody knows if it, if it's genetics or environmental or the way you ate or that you drank too much. or the, I mean, there's people that get lung cancer that never smoked. Like, cancer just, it doesn't make sense. And that's what makes it so scary is it doesn't discriminate. Right. And you and I were both people who were just living our healthy lives. You were in the best shape you'd ever been in. Mm-hmm. I remember being diagnosed and the first day it was all just matter of fact. Right. And the second day my wife says, do you want me to go to work or want me to stay here with you? I said, no, go ahead. And I wandered around the house a little bit and then I just laid on the couch and I burst into tears mm-hmm. and just screamed at the ceiling, like hurt my throat, screamed like, no, 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 no. Yeah. Like, no, I am not one of these effing people. I am not one of these people. I'm a normal person. I don't, I don't, like, what is going on? Mm -hmm. It's terrifying. (sighs) It's all fear. It's just, it, cancer is so fear-based. You hear the word cancer, it, it just immediately, whether you've been through it, you're hearing it for the first time, or somebody's just talking about it at a dinner party. The word cancer just incites fear. No matter where you are in the world, cancer is a horrible thing. People look at it as a death sentence and that you're damaged after that. I mean, you could look at my body and see all the scars and everything now. You could say that I'm damaged. I, I don't think that I'm damaged from it. Yeah. Have you ever heard of the Japanese term kintsugi? I think, but why don't you go ahead and explain it? So kintsugi is where they take beautiful pieces of different plates that have broken and they put them together with gold. And they create a new piece that's held together with gold. And that's because what they want to emphasize is the brokenness that's that that everyone is and how it you can be whole even though you're broken. Mm. And is so Leonard Cohen. Yes. Leonard Cohen saying it's the cracks that let the light in. Yes, yes. And so when I look at my scars, that's my kintsugi, right? Do you, know you, you know how to spell it by any chance? K-I-N-T-S-U-G-I, kintsugi. Yeah. 
And if you look up the art online, like just Google it while you're listening to us or whatever, it is absolutely so beautiful and so powerful. Like they don't throw away something that's broken. They actually take the very best, most valuable thing that they have, which is gold, and use it to put it back together. And that's why I look at cancer as a blessing is it took all of my brokenness that I already had ever before I had cancer, all my brokenness from my marriage, all my brokenness from my family and my relationship with my father and all of my brokenness and cancer became that beautiful gold thing that put it all back together. And it cancer actually, it might have taken everything, my breasts and all my body parts, but it actually put me back together. Because it, it made me not care about all the other dumb stuff anymore. What people think. I mean, you can't see me, but before I had cancer, I had my long blonde hair. I have a mohawk. I'm 50 years old, and I have a mohawk. And the kids love it when I come in to teach at the schools. I run a business. Like, everywhere I go, I have a mohawk. I would have never culturally allowed myself to do anything that crazy. Yeah. And rocked it for so long had I not had cancer, right? Yeah. You know, I hear a theme with you and me. You and I both experienced it as a gift. And you and I both were living our lives, you know, not true, not living true to who we were. Right. And and it knocked a reality check into us. Right. You know, it's a... Uh, and that was really the gift. You know, again, like not... not you know, having not not passing blood, which is what had me realize. You know, you know, I had an issue and went to the doctor. Not mm -hmm. the horrific radiation and chemo. Not the surgery. Not the. Not not the six months of chemotherapy that followed, but realizing that I wasn't living true to myself and recognizing, oh my gosh, I might die, and I'm not even living as who I truly am. Right. I'm pretending to be something because I'm so scared of what people will think if I be me. Mm -hmm. I'm like, no more. Like, that is the gift. Um, when I was devastated and, and on my knees, begging and praying that I was going to live, I got kids, I don't want to die. In those moments of absolute fear, that was an expression it was just another expression of how precious life was to me and 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 how much it mattered to me to live well and i don't think that the extraordinary pain in begging god higher power universe whatever it is whatever your world is my doing so was not like separate from my gratitude for the gift of this experience i recognized that this experience is going to include me falling to my knees and crying and begging to not die and in the moment i wasn't thinking oh well this is part of the gift but you know after it happened and after i you know like the next day or the next week i was just like wow like that was real and that's in the moment, that's what the truest expression of living was for me. Yeah. It wasn't that something was wrong. It wasn't that I wasn't doing something right. And in the next moment, the truest expression, you know, a week later or, or two, an hour or two hours later, the next expression of, of the truest expression of living for me when my wife and I were belly laughing about something absurd about cancer. All right. Or, or the neighbor walking their dog and we just die hysterically at the way they walk their dog. I mean, it's, 
it, it, but it includes everything. And, and yeah, it's... Uh, if you can't find humor in your cancer, if you can't find times to laugh, if you can't make totally inappropriate jokes about your cancer, it's going to be a long road. Yeah. I, I think for me, humor was such an important part of it. I remember the night before my mastectomy, letting everyone that I knew that could come to my house write jokes all over my body for my surgeon to see the next day with Sharpies. Like I just, <laughs> yeah, it was a total party. Like I had to do that. I had to, we didn't, we didn't call it cancer at my house. We called it the beast. You know, she's slaying yeah. the beast. She's slaying the beast today. And every single week, my kids would choose what I wore to chemotherapy. So one week I'd go as Tinkerbell. The next week I'd go as a black belt in karate. And the next week I'd go in a football uniform. Like it got to the point in the chemo room where everyone would just sit and wait for Carrie Ann to get there just to see what the heck she was wearing for chemo that day. That's so great. But, but everyone, you know, you just, you get through it differently. And, and some people don't, some people don't get to the other side where we are because frankly, they die. They die. Right. And, and, and I'm going to add to that, that, you know, people would say to me, Bert, you've had cancer twice and you lived like you had such a positive attitude. That's it's clearly made such a difference. And I'm like, I, I'm, I, I'll say thank you to the person. In my right. mind, I'm like, uh, I don't know. I think why I'm alive is maybe I'm lucky. Like, I have no, I don't, I don't, I don't ever like to put onto a person who is clear they're dying. That you know, you you didn't do it right. right. Like, why am I alive? I have no idea. I have friends who've had cancer once and they're gone, and I have yep. many of them and family yep. members. It doesn't make any sense. No. And I think it's important. I want to say that you know, if a person if you're listening and you and you haven't laughed about your diagnosis and you're like, you know, again, are you doing something wrong? No, I would. If it was me and I was listening, I would say, OK, so why am I not? Why don't why am I not laughing? Like, you know, this is the question I ask myself when I notice myself not um, engaging in something. I'll ask myself, you know, what am I resisting? What am I up against? What do I not want to see? And, uh, and I don't say that lightly, like it's something for you to just kind of, you know, jot down and journal and think about when you're driving. But like, I mean, like, you know, when you're sitting quietly and just allowing the emotion to just flow. And, you know, and if, the, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if you know, you sit down and reflect upon this, you know, why do I not laugh? You know, tears arising and a lot of emotional expression, uh, perhaps anger, you know, but just it's fear. Sure. Fear, what, what, whatever is there. Yeah. Just, I mean, yeah, it's not like someone should laugh, but I might ask yourself, you know, why you don't laugh. And if you don't laugh, and if you're hearing this, you're like, I'm not laughing. This isn't funny. Well, hell yeah, do it. However, you got to do it. We, Carrie and I, we are not the uh, authorities on anything. <laughs> we're the authorities on how we live our own lives, and That's we're right. both we're both a couple goofballs. Yeah. And uh, I mean, for. Crying out loud, this woman stood up as a ghost on Christmas morning and caused your child to vomit. <laughs> like, like, you want, want, want me to talk about the things that I wish I'd done a little differently with my kids when I was going through cancer? I happily do that. Oh my gosh. Like, 
nothing's going to be in mind at the moment, but maybe I'm just, you know, tr we keep talking and they'll come up or, or listen to other podcasts and you'll hear me talk about all the things I wish I'd done differently. It's, yeah. it's just, it's just an invitation to, if you can bring lightness to your diagnosis, it might bring some ease to it. And if you can, wonderful. If you're open to the inquiry, because you'd like to, wonderful. And if it's just not there for you, wonderful, you know, God bless you. You are, you're going through a cancer diagnosis and and yeah, there's no right or wrong way to oh, go through it. You heavens. just go through it. You just slog your way through it. For me, the more that I tried not to wallow in it, the more I found humor or light or, you know, wore costumes to chemo or whatever. For me personally, mm -hmm. the less sick I felt and the more I felt like I was taking the power away from the cancer. I got to decide how I acted at chemo. I got to decide what can what my cancer was called, if it was the beast or whatever mm. it was. It was certain things that helped me mentally to feel like I had some control. Because what happens when you get diagnosed is you suddenly feel like you have no more control over anything. You feel like you have cancer, your body's out of control, your life's out of control, your finances are out of control. Like it's such a control thing when you get diagnosed and we have such a human tendency to want to be in control. And so for me, it was just little ways of feeling like I still had some control under what over what was going on in complete and utter chaos. That's a beautiful example because for me, it was the exact opposite and it worked for both of us. For me, oh. for me, where I found my freedom was when I realized I had no say over how this was going to go. <laughs> there you I go. Don't, I don't know if I'm going to live. I don't know if I'm going to die. I have no say. And in that, in on you know a, a moment that i can't point to but at some point it just hit me like oh then i can let go of that mm -hmm. because i can't control it and that gave me peace and what gave you peace was grabbing control of what you could have what you could yeah and and, and you rocked it like that and it was wonderful it's really there, there's i mean gosh there's no way to there's no one way to do anything no there's not I was I was really grateful though to have some mentors. I think um, there's so many more resources now for people. Podcasts like this, or you know, chat groups on Facebook or wherever where you can get support. I had a, a mentor, a girl that was younger than me in high school, and she reached out to me when I got diagnosed and said, "I remember you from high school. I thought you were like a god. You were so cool." And I was like, "I was such a dork in high school. Are you mm -hmm. sure you're thinking of the same person?" Yeah. And she was like, "You know, let me hear some pointers on chemo. You know, it was just a really simple conversation that started that way. And then she became a very meaningful mentor to me because she was going through um, a recurrence of her breast cancer." And we were going through all of the same treatments at the same time. And mm. so we would have chemo. We made it so we had chemo on the same day. And then I don't know about you. Well, you had, well, I know about you, but chemo for me was super constipating. So like, it was like a big damn deal when you finally pooped. And so we would text each other like, I pooped. And we'd be so happy for each <laughs> other, you know, Woo <laughs> I feel so good, you know, oh and stuff goodness. like that. And so having a having mentor a mentor like that was was so incredibly important to me until um, I got the phone call that she had died. Mm. And so that was the first time I ever truly experienced um, survivor's guilt. 
because she was a single mom. She had two kids. Like our lives were like mirror images of each other. And she was my mentor. She was telling me how to get through it because she'd done it before. And then um, she was gone. Yeah. And, um, and it just goes to show you that what worked the first time may not work the second time. Like it's just, it's just a moving target. So you just like, you just have to be open. I don't even know how to explain that. Do you know what I mean by that? I I do. I do. I, uh, you know, I haven't had survivor's guilt, but I had a friend who had rectal cancer and it was stage four when she was diagnosed. And there was a point where it became clear that, you know, they were running out of treatment options. Mm -hmm. And, um, as much as she told me that I was her inspiration because I was a stage four person with no, you know, detectable sign. What's the acronym? Ned. No evidence Ned. of disease. No evidence of disease. Part of me, you know, felt bad. Yeah. Like, oh, like, give this woman a break. Like, she's just on it. They're just swapping the chemos and doing everything they can. And, yeah, I... I I felt some guilt, you know, and then I recognized, you know, I, I kind of sat with that and recognized, well, what's that about, you know, and it's, yeah. you know, I, I don't know if I have words for it right now, but I was able to just shift it from guilt to just an acknowledgement of sadness for her. But it can really, it can really catch you off guard when something like that happens. Yeah. But then over the years, it has turned into... I mean, it might sound cliche, but when I find myself missing her or feeling sad or her daughter recently got married and I thought, oh, my gosh, she should have mm. her mom there and stuff. And then I just feel that sort of smack across the face like she wouldn't want you to feel bad about this. She you're there still you here and she wants you to live your life. So, like, just, you know, as a tribute to her, live. Don't be sad about it. Live. Yeah, the people who love you. If they pass away, they certainly would not want us being not being happy because they died. If like, they, you know, if I die, for crying out loud, all of you I love and all of you who are listening, live your ass off. Yes. Okay. Like, no, live and be <laughs> filled with joy as much as possible, and cry to your fullest when you cry, and laugh your hardest when you laugh, and have a wonderful life. And oh my goodness, like, don't don't not live because of. Uh, being gone when that day should come because we're if when that day does come excuse me <laughs> because here's the deal we walk around acting like we have time but we don't mm -hmm. so you have mm -hmm. to live like you have to live even when you're in treatment you have to live you know one of the things i did when i was in i was in chemo and radiation we're talking bald no boob like the whole thing i decided mm. i was suddenly going to take belly dancing Sweet. So I became a belly dancer and wore the costume, no hair, did the recitals. I mean, I'm a 40-some-year-old woman at a dance recital, belly dancing and stuff. Mm. And I just, and I would kick myself in the butt because I would think, why was I so afraid to do this stuff before I got cancer? Why was I so worried about what everyone was going to think about me? That's so fantastic. I have a friend who has actually, she has a podcast on belly, a belly dancing podcast. Oh, Wow. Her name is Alicia Free. Well, that's her podcast name. And uh, I don't know the name of it because I don't have it saved in my podcasts. Bert, but, uh, we need to get you belly dancing. You'd be a great belly dancer. Yeah, I don't know if that's going to happen. 
I like to shake my pouch a little bit. Hey, to each his own, right? So yeah, I didn't have um, constipation from my chemotherapy because I had a colostomy at that point. Right. Well, I take that back. You can have constipation with a pouch. In fact, I have had it, but you know, chemotherapy yeah. did not affect me, did not constipate me. And interestingly, you know, the more I ate, the less nauseous I felt. Oh, wow. So I would just eat like a madman. Yeah. That... I, I, gained, I gained weight on chemo. I, well, I gained weight on chemo too, but it was more like that whole retention. I almost looked like I'd had an organ transplant. You know how those people get really, really puffy? No, I don't. They get really, really puffy because it's just chemo so hard on your liver and your kidneys. Like they are just working so hard, especially when you have it every <sighs> single week or every day like you did. Like it's just so hard on your body. So it, it, it slows down its regular processes because it's not sure what to do with all of that poison that's getting put in you. I remember the first chemo treatment I had, I was like, so you're going to stick a needle into my chest and you're going to fill me full of chemotherapy, which is coming out of a bag that has a poison sign on it. And you are wearing hazmat attire. This, mm -hmm. should, be, this should be fun. <laughs> I remember the one time that one of the nurses in getting the, uh, you know, the, the, the line, the chemo line ready, getting ready to put it in my port, she spilled some of the chemo liquid oh, no. onto the tile floor. Oh, no. And she called over one of her coworkers quickly to clean it up. And I'm like, what's the issue? She said, oh, that will just eat right through the, uh, the, tile. the floor, the floor tile. Or the surface of it. You know, I'm like, and you're putting that in my body. And she laughed with me and said, yeah. Right into your heart. Huh. Yeah, right into my heart. Like when I, so after treatment, when I still had the port, um, there came a point when I was, uh, let's see, I had a pulmonary embolism, which the Holy doctors, cow. yeah, the docs wouldn't say that it came from the chemo, but it was post chemo. Suddenly 60% of my right lung was, was blocked, you know, was not getting blood and I was exhausted all the time. And wow. so when they found that, they called me into the hospital. You know, of course, me being me, I walk in. I'm like, hi, I'm uh, Bert Scholl. I'm here, Robert Scholl. I'm here with, uh, with pulmonary embolism. They're like, you are here for pulmonary <laughs> like, they, they didn't roll me in in a, in a gurney or whatever. I'm like, no. <laughs> they started laughing at me. They go, okay, this is what we have going on. And they you know, checked me in and started the belly shots and all that stuff. Oh, um, <laughs> they, they, they give you shots of, uh, you know, an anticoagulant into the abdomen. Oh, yeah. You probably drove yourself to the hospital too, didn't you? Well, I do think that my wife gave me a ride just in case my the embolism were to slip and go, you know, instantly kill me. I don't want to crash the car and kill someone. But I made it through that, and uh, then after that, I was still extremely fatigued from we didn't know what, and so they I saw a cardiologist, I saw a pulmonologist, um. Long story short, they figured out that I simply had, uh, what did they call it? They called it um, systemic atrophy. Yeah. yeah. Systemic atrophy. My whole body just kind of settled into a very... Uh, sedentary state. Sedentary state. And, and therefore, to do anything was exhausting. So they just you know sent me to a physical therapist and worked me out. But in the process of going to all these different doctors, and I went to the cardiologist. They gave me a, you know, a heart... Uh, what is it? Is it a sonogram or a... Ultrasound on the heart, probably an ultrasound on the heart. An echocardiogram. Echocardiogram. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast, Carrie. 
and, uh, and they said, and I'm looking at it and I can, I'm like, what is that thing flopping around in my heart? Like, I'm terrified. Like, what? Oh, that's the, uh, that's, that's the end of the, the line of your uh, port. Uh-huh. It just actually goes past the valve and it goes into your heart and fl- I'm like, okay. And, and that's okay. They're totally normal. Like, all right. <laughs> Isn't it so weird? It's so weird. I felt like a transformer with my port in. Like, do you know what I mean? Because could you feel it go up over your clavicle? And oh yeah, with the hepatic artery pump in my abdomen, it was on my right side, and it was the size of a hockey puck. Oh gosh! And had you know it like a port. It had a uh, um, yep. silicone, a little silicone access point. Uh huh. And so I was blessed to have an incredible four-piece, you know, honk, outlaw honky-tonk country band. We'd play my songs in the bar. And uh, so I'd get chemo one Friday, one when, you know, Wednesday through Friday. And then the following week on a Friday, I would book a gig. Not every time, you know, but that's when my gigs would be, gigs would be booked is on the off week. Right. And, uh, you know, we'd play in the bar, you know, nine o'clock to midnight and just blow the roof off the place. And so much fun. And man, that just kept me thriving you know for sure and when i was feeling miserable the following week i'd know i had a gig coming up in a few weeks and uh there was a point <laughs> with this hepatic artery pump in my abdomen i play the guitar and i kind of it's an acoustic guitar so i hang it kind of high the body of the guitar is resting against this pump and it hurt and i had a buddy of mine bring in some uh some of that you know styrofoam egg carton material mm-hmm. and i used a uh it's called a B band. It's what pregnant women wear where when their pants no longer fit. Oh right! And so they can wrap it around. And I went to Target and I bought the B band and I, you know, I got the smallest size possible and wrapped it for my skinny little body. And I wrapped it around me and put the piece of egg carton foam in there so Genius. the guitar, because my skin was hurting from the guitar hitting the tip of this hepatic artery pump. Oh yeah. I mean the crazy things that we do and the thing and and all that we learn about our body you know i had rectal cancer i didn't even know what my rectum was i would make jokes when i was younger and say you know rectum damn near killed him (laughs) not even knowing not even knowing what i was saying and then so after i was cancer free the first time i thought people have given me so much love and support i'm gonna have a roast and i'm gonna let the people who love me just shred me and they roasted me for hours it was wonderful my siblings because i had rectal cancer you know they made a cake they made a uh a uh a chocolate cake with red velvet frosting and on the cake it said rectum damn near killed him oh no (laughs) (laughs) see even they found humor in it somehow right yeah and so then my friends just went on to roast me for hours it was wonderful you know, so much love and so much care and compassion have been expressed. I wanted everyone, including me, to just be able to let loose and yeah. just release all of the tension that's being held because you don't know if you're going to lose this person. Well, and I don't know about you, but I found um, I spent more time comforting everyone else than they did comforting me. There was plenty of that, yeah. I was always like, it's going to be okay. It's going to be fine. Like, here's what's going on. I know it looks like it hurts, but I'm fine. Like, I spent the majority of my time because mm. I'm the one going through it. So I know how it feels. I know what's going on. I have all the information. Everyone else on the outside, they feel helpless. All they could do is, like, bring a casserole. You know what I mean? And right. so I, They're powerless. I, 
yeah, they're powerless. And they just didn't know what to do to help. And in Utah, this is the casserole capital of the United States for sure. <laughs> I, I don't even know what that means. You have to elaborate. <laughs> the casserole capital of the United States. <laughs> well, there's a lot of Mormons here. And they know how to make casseroles to feed their big families. So you get a lot of casseroles when you're sick here. All right. And, All a, right. Lot of, and a lot of jello. Because there's a lot of jello consumption in the state of Utah. They don't drink alcohol, wow. but they eat a lot of Jello. <laughs> the things that I would not ever know <laughs> until right now. I like Cast that you. Them. I like that you gave people another um, outlet because I think it's part of the process. You know, there's like grief and fear. There's humor. There's peace. There's like, I feel like I have felt every emotion you could possibly feel because of cancer. Oh my goodness! Yeah. It's worth noting like that in the gift that I found the experience to be, I don't want any more gifts. No, I'm good. I'm not going to be to please get that. Like it's, it's, an, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a peculiar, uh, it's a peculiar thing because, you know, as grateful as I am for what it provided, I'm not going to pretend that it was not brutal. Yeah. I don't want to do it again. No, I've done it twice. Yeah, bless your heart. I, I have no say, but you know, I, I think I don't think I need to uh, point out that once is enough, twice is definitely enough. There's a guy here in town, I, you know, whose name I won't say because it's his to say, but uh, maybe he'll be on the podcast. But this guy must have had cancer like five or six times so far. Wow, and he's still doing his thing, and but I'm like, what? <laughs> what? Yeah, but I think that's so important because when people get their diagnosis, especially when you finally get staged and they're like, oh, you're stage four. You know what? All that, like, don't get caught up in the statistics. Don't get caught up in your stage. I don't know. I feel like I'm preaching a little bit right now, but I think right. sometimes when people get stage four, they quit. They think, oh, we're there. We're stage four. Like... Can't right. get any worse, you know. Oh, that's a death sentence. And I'm like, well, they gave me six weeks to live, and I'm coming up on 10 years. I get people that contact me all the time. They're like, oh, my mom just got diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. And I'm like, well, that's not anything to laugh at for sure. But but don't, like, that's not the end of it, you know. It's just, it's part of the diagnosis. But that doesn't, if you let, I think if you, if you, it's a mental game. Don't you think cancer is such a mental game too? All the time. A hundred percent. I had the roast because I just wanted to provide people and myself, like I said, you know, the opportunity to express the side of it, to release everything because yeah. when you don't know if someone's going to live, there's a lot of concern. And yes, you were talking about, you know, you being the uh, person who was like caring for the folks who were checking in on you. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, I remember being uh, a support for people who were checking in on me because, yeah. you know, they were so concerned. There's so much emotion. And, and when you have been the one diagnosed, you know, you, uh, like for me, you know, go ahead. When you're the one diagnosed, you're in survival mode. Yeah. And when folks who are your loved ones, people who care about you and you've been diagnosed, you know, they are... They're powerless yeah. to deal with it. I just had a conversation with a friend yesterday reminding her, like, you actually get to say how your treatment goes. And that was one of the most powerful things 
that was ever said to me when my friend who had cancer before me called me. She said, your doctors have the training, the experience, the wisdom, they bring all of that, but you get to say how your treatment goes. And if something doesn't work for you, you get to say so. And then they do that, or they talk to you about alternatives, but you get to say how your treatment goes. So I know, you know the contribution that I can be, but there are folks who haven't called upon me and I have felt a little powerless at times, you know, wishing that I could be more of a contribution. It's hard for people. And so you end up consoling them because they're, they're struggling with the fact that you have a, a disease that could kill you. Right. And it's like, it's like any time when it's hard, like if somebody loses a child or there's a death or something like that, people just, they don't know what to say. They don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. They do their best. I mean, I had a lot of people say stuff to me that I knew it was coming from their heart and they were trying to say something comforting, but it was the wrong thing to say. And I oh, don't, yeah. I don't hold that against them. You know what I mean? No. You just, I would, I just would, I, I would always be reminding myself like, they don't know what to say. They don't know what to do, but they're here. They're showing up. They're bringing me a casserole. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> they're trying, yeah. they're trying. And I, and I appreciate that so much. And so, you know, I had kind of like a little entourage of people that would just text me all the time because they knew that I wasn't up for much chit chat, but I would get just a text message or a funny meme or something like that. And that, yeah, that those were great supports because it didn't take any energy expended on my part. I didn't have to comfort them or react to them or respond or explain or anything. I just knew that it was love coming in for me and I could just absorb that and didn't feel any obligation to get back when it was simple like that. Yes. Cause sometimes you're exhausted and people want to visit you and you want them to come and you want the love and you want the support, but it is exhausting when you have gone through treatment to sit <laughs> and entertain people and try to have conversation. And sometimes my brain just didn't chemo brain is real. Holy chemo cow. Brain's so real. And so, yeah, people want you to explain stuff, and you're like, I can't even remember if I ate today. <laughs> that was why I kept the blog. Smart, yeah. Because that way, everyone who loves and cares about me can read the blog and see how I'm doing. Oh, so it's smart. Not that, I don't, not that I don't want to talk to you, but like, I'd be on the phone from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep. Mm -hmm. That just doesn't work. So now, so what about your life now? Like how, okay, so we've both been through divorces. We both have scars and you have your bag and I don't have any breasts. And like, you know, we have these totally different bodies and this different mindset and everything. What about your life now? Like, how does dating go? How is your son doing with all of this? I mean, you're, mm. you're contributing, you're doing the podcast. I feel like survivors are always wanting to give back. We're always trying to find ways to have an impact and help and all that kind of stuff. But, but then I feel like so many cancer survivors, I know we kind of struggle a little bit with some of our personal life. Hmm. I sit with a lot of spiritual teachers, not a lot, a couple different spiritual teachers. I've done a couple of retreats with each. Mm. And uh, I've been to a therapist, and I go to uh, a seminar, you know, a 10-session seminar twice a year, all about, you know, just um, looking at my blind spots. So I guess the answer to your question is I'm always doing work, looking at what, you know, distinguishing what it is I don't see. Wow. 
because, you know, some people say to me, wow, you're really into that stuff. I'm like, another way to look at it is maybe I'm just trying to stay sane. Yeah. You know, maybe I'm not really into it so much as it's just like, it's really, you know, and I do love it. I do love the work, but it's, I stay engaged in, you know, how I can be a contribution in the world and what part of myself am I not looking at? And which is always made apparent to me by whatever part of life is not working. Yeah. You know, as far as dating goes, after my marriage ended, the first woman I dated after my marriage ended, I found out that she was uh, having an affair on her fiancé with me. Oh, no. And I was like, I'm done. I'm done. And I must have gone three or four years just like any woman I dated. I was like, there's no relationship happening here just so you know and if you think this letting you know i learned later on that apparently that's what a lot of men say mm -hmm. and then women are used to that and then they hope something will change and i was just like no i'm actually serious like <laughs> I don't, it's, it's not an option and i dated a woman a couple of years ago for about a year mm -hmm. and she's wonderful and she and i are still friends i just don't feel i'm not feeling drawn to a a relationship it's 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 Here's the thing. It's not missing for me. Right. I'm not looking for a relationship. And I know that when the time comes for me to be in a relationship, I will be. Um, but right now, it's uh, it just when, you know, it, the week, you know, I go through my work week and I go through the weekend and I'm back to doing my thing. And I'm like, yeah, it's just I, I don't have a place for that right now. It's not it's not missing. It's not of great interest. I mean, occasionally I'll meet a woman and be like, huh, wonder if, and then I just get carried away with whatever I'm doing. Yeah. I'm happy. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think when you're so happy, finally, with who you are, you don't feel like it's one of those boxes that you have to check to be in a relationship. If it comes, it comes. It's not a obligatory thing that you yeah. search out. I mean, that's how I feel. Every relationship that ever that I've ever been in has come right on time. Oh. I don't feel like I've ever had any say. Wow. You know, when I was younger, younger, when I was like in my twenties, like I didn't know what was up, and I, you know, it was just all about you know wanting to be in a relationship and this and that. But after I turned thirty, I did this. Uh, I did this weekend course. It's all about people seeing their blind spots, and uh, it kind of just straightened me out in that regard and I don't know what shifted all I know is something shifted and when and the timing just always seems to be right I don't, I don't put any effort into meeting women and when they come into my life it when those who have come into my life it's it's you know to whatever degree of relationship that it is the timing is just right so do you feel like cancer hasn't really had much impact on you that way then because the women that have come into your life have come at the right time regardless of the cancer? I will say that after my wife ended our marriage, I was scared of how women were going to respond to my having a colostomy and having a pouch. Mm -hmm. And then when I got diagnosed the second time, I was like, okay, uh, you know, is anybody going to want to date me? Mm-hmm. You know, because uh, I'm not a safe bet. Right. And I would talk with women about that, and they'd say, you know, that's I'm interested in you. That's not my concern. 
Like, I get this is part of who you are. And I said, okay, well. Yeah. That works. But it's... No, how about you? Um, I... I don't date. I don't run away from it, but I don't seek it out. I'm kind of a lot for somebody to handle. <laughs> hmm. I'm a, I'm a bit of a force, you know, and I'm very passionate about the things that I, you know, your contribution is what you're doing. My teaching maturation and speaking to girls and women about loving their bodies, no matter, you know, no matter what, that, that's something that's incredibly important to me. I just feel so happy with who I am now that it just doesn't seem like it's something that's important in my life mm -hmm. I'm, i don't feel like i'm missing it ever i never ever think oh i wish i had a date tonight because i always have something that i can do or people that i can be happily engaged mm. with and so i i'm fine with it and i always joke too with people and say i don't know when do you tell them that your boobs got cut off twice would that be the first <laughs> day the third day when they're taking your shirt off like when does that topic come up you know and so i just think I, it'd be, I, I would assume that most men would actually really struggle with me not having breasts and scars and all of that. Maybe that's not a fair assumption. I'm not, I I'm, I'm not ashamed of it at all. You know, I think that... So there was a woman that I was intimate with, and uh, we were at her place kissing and went upstairs, and we got undressed, and she saw my pouch and just, like, couldn't deal. No and I, I, I think she may have been able to deal if I had said, so remember, I have a pouch and I'm going to take it. But I didn't. I just pulled my shirt off and I wear a uh, I wear a hernia belt and I just whipped that off. She's just like, whoa, 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 whoa. And she just it, she just kind of froze up, you know, and, yeah. and I, had, I had compassion for her. Now, the right. next week when I saw her, we got together for a walk. I said to her, I said, you know, if you were the first woman I dated... After my wife left me, you would have wrecked me. And then I burst out laughing, and she burst out laughing. <laughs> I was just like, "Oh god!" But, but I get like, it wasn't about me. It wasn't right. me. It was like she would have responded that way to anybody who had what I have. Right. And it didn't work for her. And it's like, it it I didn't pass judgment, and uh, you know, um, maybe I didn't, again I didn't pass judgment because maybe if she was the first woman who dated me after my wife ended our marriage, it may have been a uh, <laughs> I may have passed yes. judgment. I'm, I'm no saint here, but it, it, <laughs> I, I didn't. I didn't. You know, it was uh, it was okay with me. And um, I think that any man who is interested in you, you know, he, you know, I, I like to, I, I like, to, I like to, you know, I like to shoot straight and be honest. You know, it's like maybe he might be like, oh, I'm disappointed. I wish he had boobs. Right. And then what? If if, right. the, if he's not going to date you because you don't have boobs, then I would say, well, either it's a massive barrier for him or I would question how interested he was in you. Exactly. And then he's just not a match for you. Like, it's not well, about, I, like, you have something that's missing. It's like if he, if, if, if that's such a priority to him, I mean, Carrie Ann, when I meet a woman that I'm interested in, I didn't even recognize, if, if I may say so, I didn't even recognize how attractive my wife was, my, you know, before we, when we first started dating, I was so into who she was that she oh, wow. finally caught on. She's like, do you notice me? Honey? You know, she didn't say it, but it, it, it became apparent that I was, and then suddenly one day I realized like, wow, this woman is like, holy cow, she's beautiful. And, uh, you know, when I, 
when I genuinely fell in love and wanted to be married, it's because like the conversations we had were just, they, ne you know, they, they only ended because one of us had to go do something. You know, yeah. one of us had to go to work, one of us had to go to sleep. I mean, it was just such a wonderful relationship that if she didn't have breasts, I'd be like, uh, okay. You know, it's, like I said, maybe I might be like, oh, well, I wish she did. But it's like, well, she doesn't. So when one person is genuinely interested in another, you know, it's, 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 it's how we connect in, 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 as two people, you know, it, it's how we interact with one another that, and who we are for each other. That is what we fall in love with. But you know, I agree with that. Except for when I've gone to like the breast cancer support groups, I am utterly heartbroken for women that have been married 20 years, get breast cancer, have a mastectomy and their husband says, I'm no longer attracted to you. I still think you're a wonderful person, but I'm not attracted to you since you don't have breasts. Let's get a divorce. Oh, I'm I shocked at how often that happens. I wish that husband would go to therapy and right? see what, because in my mind, it makes me wonder, okay, so what came up for you that is using the missing breasts as the opportunity mm. to step away? Very interesting. Do you not want to have a wife who might get cancer again? Were you so rattled by this that you just don't want to be a part of this? Because I don't think if you truly love somebody that miss the breast no longer being there is going to be the issue. I think it's because he is way too confronted. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know why my marriage ended with my wife, but my stepson was nine our baby was five months old and I was diagnosed with stage two rectal cancer and it was a two year process and then almost a year of recovering from the treatment. And we did not have the capacity and the self-awareness to navigate it <clears throat> with grace and love. Yeah. We, all of our stuff just spilled out all over the place. And our marriage ended. And, uh, and and she and I just talked about that just a couple of days ago. Really? And I, I invited her to be on the podcast so we could have that conversation. Is she going to be on? And she said yes. Oh, wow. That's going to be a good one. Yeah, because we want everyone to know, like, it, when you don't have the skills to navigate a relationship with a cancer diagnosis, mm -hmm. oh, what a mess that can make. Well, and sometimes the cancer itself is the easiest part of that, right? The treatment and that stuff is the easiest part. It's the navigating that relationship and trying to get through it. And, I mean, even the strongest couples I've seen, it just... Destroy it for whatever reason. I mean, there's a myriad of reasons that I've heard, but it sometimes it puts a spotlight on what the weaknesses in your marriage are, and the cancer just kind of pushes it over the edge, and and then yes, yeah, the marriage if, if is over, and you blame the cancer, <clears throat> but the problems were probably there way before the cancer. Yes, and as I said, you know, maybe the the husband who doesn't want to be with the wife anymore because he's not attracted to her anymore. Perhaps also, you know, the wife could go to a therapist, but perhaps they could both go and recognize, okay, like, because you nailed it, like, what's going on in our relationship that cancer was like, I don't want to call it the 
the, you know, the straw on the camel's back, but that cancer was what it just, it all just became too much. Just magnifies it. Like if you're in a relationship and, and, and some part of you is like, this isn't working. This isn't what I thought I was going to, what it was going to be. And then cancer arises. It's like, okay, I already don't want to be in this marriage. And now there's cancer. Although. I'm not saying, you know, I'm saying there's one option. You know, I'm, I'm curious. I'm thinking out loud about, you know, what it would be that would have it go that way. Because I just don't believe that a person's body changing would be. No, I don't either. But I also cannot even fathom trying to go to marriage counseling while you're in treatment because you're mm-hmm. so you're so single-mindedly just fighting to survive that sometimes when you go to marriage counseling, you know, like you don't leave uplifted. You you do hard work when you're in marriage counseling. Yes. And if you're sick and going through really hard traumatic mental and emotional work like that working on a marriage at the same time i don't know that i don't even think i could handle that that's a lot yeah yep I, I'm, oh my goodness yeah i mean to, to you know you go home with work and reflection and sometimes in really hard places and then on top of that you're Sick. When we say navigating a diagnosis, like what you're navigating the thinking of a person who's trying to stay alive and who, who who's confronted with the possibility of dying. Yeah. It's so much. My when heart you, just goes... When you got sick the second time, like, have you ever sat down and, like, planned your funeral? Did you ever take that moment and sit down with the people that care about you and plan your funeral? No. Really? I, I thought I would if uh, if I got further down the road. But I, no. Did, did you? Oh, for sure. Sounds I, like you did, yeah. I sat down with my kids. We talked all about it. It was a. It was another awakening because it, I realized even though I was living that the funeral is not for the dead. It's for the living. And so to think you, need, the, to, think you need to have a lot of say in your own funeral, no. I've heard people say, well, we had the funeral as such and such because, you know, before he died, he said he didn't want us to have anything special or big deal. And I say, okay. And in my mind, what I'm thinking is, okay, well, when he dies, he doesn't have to have anything that's a big deal. But the rest of us, the rest of you can have a really big deal because this is not for him. No, we want to honor his wishes. And I I get that. Like that. I'm not, you know, not to diminish it like you know there's there is that there is honoring someone's wishes you know so the, there's the question you know how can we honor this person's wishes and at the same time provide a service that or, um, create a service that provides us what we need right because we are mourning we are grieving yeah my mom died um a week after my second mastectomy this last fall and um she had moved away from us. Sorry to hear that. It's a very long story. She was kind of kidnapped by a family member and had been kept from us for 18 months Mm. after she lived. It was kind of, so I found out about her death from a phone call from an attorney and she had already been cremated and there was no funeral. Oh. And so we have never had that service. And I've realized now how important it is for the living, for those of us that are still here, or had I passed away, it would have been so important for my kids to have that service, whether it's a Christian service or a standing by a creek, throwing rocks in and sharing memories, whatever it is, you know, 
funerals are or those types of services are, are are a way for the living to move forward. There's nothing saying you can't have one. I know. We need to do that, but we can't figure out what we want to do. You know, I've had friends who, you know, they're, they have a, a parent who dies, and they go to the town where the parent lives, mm-hmm. and there's the service, and they come back here to Ithaca. And I thought to myself, why is there not also a wake happening here in town for my friend whose family member died? Yeah. Like, let's have a, you know, why, why don't you hold a wake? And like, I think to myself, you know, like when my dad died, we went to Boston, and he died, then we came back here. And nobody, none of my friends went to the service. It was in Boston. It was five and a half hours away. Like, and I wouldn't, I would have been told them they were crazy if they were going to come. Right. But it would have made a lot of sense if when I came home, I had a wake. Yeah. I invited because... my friends to come and, 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 and connect with me and support me. Yeah. I think that's and, beautiful. Yeah. That's missing. I fi- I've never heard of it happening. I think it's something that would be wonderful if it existed in this culture. To this day, Where, I've told everyone that when I die, I do not want fu- I do not want flowers. I want everyone to stick plastic pink yard flamingos all over my grave. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine pulling into the cemetery and seeing like oh 300 plastic pink yard flamingos stuck all over somebody's grave? You'll be, you'll be the reason why this graveyard is now has a rule where they limit the number of pink flamingos that are allowed on any gravesite. I just think it oh would be fantastic. Goodness. That would be wonderful. Gosh, I don't know. I, when I thought about the possibility of dying, what, what was more present in my mind was having a living wake. Mm. Like, I don't know who of my friends and family would be open to participating in that, but I want y'all to come to my wake while I'm alive. Yes! I had a conversation with a friend one day about, um, you know, he just loves to, uh, to tease people and, uh, you know, just you know, just just give people a hard time and harass them. And uh, when I first met him, he would do that to me, and I would be a little taken back by it. He'd be a little <laughs> bit much at times. And then he'd look at me and say, "Dude, I do that all day long. I, you know, I can spot it because I'm doing the same thing." And he, in his teasing, he really got me to like, you know, kind of, I guess, you know, develop my confidence. Yeah. Because he is such a joker about his own flaws. And I, I acknowledged him one day for it and just said, hey, I just want you to know, like, this is who you are for me. Like, your joking and playfulness and, and teasing really got me to be able to take myself a little more lightly. And, you know, you've made me a more confident, I've become a more confident person as a result. And he was just like, whoa, thank you. Aww. He, he like, he's like, I, I'm kind of, he's kind of blown away. I said, well, you know, dude, we say these things at people's wakes. Let's say them when they're alive. And <laughs> we gave each other a hug. He was like, hell yeah. That's right. So that's you know what your podcasts are going to be like a living wake when you go because you're the legacy that you're leaving behind with all this information and allowing everyone to express themselves. I I think there's no greater moment in life than allowing people to tell their stories, whatever their story is, not just cancer. Everyone has a story and we just need to. We need to tell our stories, and we need to listen and let other people tell their stories. We have so much to learn from one another. So much. And if nothing more than just saying, "Wow, I'm not the only one." Yep. Or if you do, or if you if you don't relate that way, just saying, "Wow, that must have been hard," or "I'm sorry." It's just we we haven't we're losing the art of empathy 
and sympathy because our lives are at such a high speed with social media and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, we're not going to change anybody's life with our social media posts for sure. Right. And so we have such a short attention span that we've, the, we've lost the gift of empathy. And I think that's what you're doing in these podcasts is you're bringing people together, different cancers, right? We've had very different cancers, but our common thread is that experience and what we've pulled from it and what we're doing with it now and the ability to share. I mean, I can't remember the last time I sat and talked for three hours with somebody. It just, it just fills my soul. Yeah. I'm loving this. And it was listening to podcasts. Um, that had me, I listened to the Joe Rogan podcast, a lot of the Joe Rogan experience. Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, he'll speak to um, physicists and, uh, you know, um, incredible authors that, you know, you know, research sleep. And re- he'll bring Neil deGrasse Tyson on. And then he'll bring one of his fellow comedians on and have one of the foulest, most, you know, <laughs> grotesque, humor-filled podcasts that would, you know... <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like I tell people, like if you're gonna check out the Joe Rogan podcast, if you're not into that kind of humor, just <laughs> skip the comedian parts because these guys, there's no holds barred. <laughs> oh my it's outrageous. But listening to his podcast had me start thinking about my thinking. Mm. Had me start thinking about where did I get my opinions from, and I started noticing how many thoughts and how many opinions about how society should be, and you know. Where do they come from? And so many of them came from our culture. And I actually yes. didn't know why I thought what I thought. And it was humbling. And I got really interested in, in in thinking about my thinking from a different point of view. When it came to like, again, I'm not on this podcast to talk about political and social change, and I won't. But he got me to think about my political perspectives. Mm-hmm. And, and what I think about, you know, how we are socially in this country. I'm like... I actually don't know why I think that. Mm. And so in the context of cancer and navigating these diagnoses, my hope with this podcast is that people will hear our conversation and take away one thing that has them reflect upon how they're experiencing it, what what they're taking on, what they're letting in, because it's... Like you and me, these diagnoses just, you know, mentally just like ripped us open. Yes. And we dove headfirst into it. And, you know, you get, as you're diving into it and and, and growing and expanding and learning and discovering yourself, you know, it's not all easy. It's not all pleasant. It's not all joyful. Sometimes it can be really rough. But, you know, recognizing that being willing to reflect and not know and discover a new point of view, uh, you know, what there is to let go of is it's, it's worth it. You know, every, every day on every day, the first time I got diagnosed, I had this mantra and it was a question and it was, what do I need to let go of today? What do I need to give up? Today, I'm letting go, and this is what I would say, you know, today I'm letting go of how I thought cancer would be and actually being with what's so. Today, I'm letting go of what I thought chemotherapy would be like and I'm being with what's so. Today, I'm letting go of how I expected my family members to respond and I'm being with 
whatsoever. I'm giving them, I, I, I don't know, today I don't know how to give them the space to be who they are because it's not working for me. And my commitment is to find a way to feel love and gratitude for them while they are going through it exactly as they're going through it. And I didn't always know how I was going to do that. And it was hard. And, and then you got through it and so did they. And mm -hmm. people had takeaways from your cancer just like you had takeaways from your cancer. For me, the greatest takeaway from my cancer was to be grateful for my cancer. Mm -hmm. To live in gratitude. That's the... I find my chaos and yeah, I'm discombobulated baby. and I can't have empathy for other people when I am not living in gratitude. And that's when I have to pull it in and recenter and remember that all the things that I'm grateful for. Cause if, what if you woke up tomorrow and the only things that you had is what you expressed gratitude for today? What would you have tomorrow? Hmm. That's beautiful. Gratitude. I love that. I love that. Gratitude is my barometer. And I notice yes. that when I'm not feeling grateful, that's letting me know that I have gone off path. I've gone Absolutely. off track. I've gone off track and there's something to distinguish. And Absolutely. sometimes it takes in a couple hours and sometimes it takes a couple weeks and sometimes it takes a couple months and there's probably a couple things, you know, I mean, who knows? It's just, but like, I'm not feeling grateful. What? Yeah. First of all, I'm alive. I've got Every two day. kids. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Gratitude is everything. And that's why I'm grateful for the cancer because it taught me gratitude. Instead of a list of all the supposed to be's that I'm trying to check every day, I'm grateful that I don't have a list because I'm happy and I'm whole. And that, I mean, gratitude is everything. Everything. Gratitude is oxygen. Gratitude is everything. The first, still to this day, every <laughs> single day when I wake up in the morning, I take my pulse. <laughs> and I'm like, it's going to be a good day. It's going to be a good day. Oh, that's beautiful. Carrie You're Ann, so awesome, Bert. Right back at you. Thank you so much for this conversation. For those of you listening, like Carrie Ann and I met on social media through a mutual friend. And uh, this is the first actual conversation we've ever had and it's just been an absolute pleasure getting to know you and hearing about your experience and being enlightened with your points of view well thank you for having me on the podcast i hope we talk more than after the podcast <laughs> yeah and and uh let's uh have you back sounds good love you bert love you too bye-bye bye, -bye. bye. Carrie Ann's Maturation Course is published in English, Spanish, and closed caption and can be purchased for individual schools or entire school districts. You can find this on her website at carrieann.com. That's C-A-R-R-I-E-A-N-N.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. I truly hope this podcast was of value to you. Please subscribe and let your friends and family know they can find But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast, anywhere podcasts are made available. To learn more about my cancer survivorship coaching, go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. The intro and outro music you hear is the creation of Saint Kid. You can find him on social media as The Saint Kid. See you all in the next podcast, and thank you so much for listening. The purpose of this podcast is to 
provide a platform for individuals to discuss personal experiences with a medical diagnosis. The host and guests are not medical professionals and the podcast is not intended to provide medical advice or psychological therapy. Whenever there is a concern about mental or physical health, please consult a qualified medical professional.